they say age is just a number, and Valentina Rossi proved that again as the doctor put on a clinic at Assen. Welcome to Bike Life. Let's go! Yes, welcome to episode 19 of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101 as we look back on another memorable MotoGP weekend, this time in the Netherlands as the Cathedral delivered three fantastic Grand Prix races. Valentino Rossi ending his year-long winning drought in MotoGP, holding off Danilo Petrucci in a thrilling finish in the Premier Class to win his first Grand Prix since Catalonia 2016 and close right in on the championship leader. We'll talk about all the stories to come from the MotoGP weekend in Assen and there were plenty of them. Make no mistake. We'll also look back on Moto2 as Franco Morbidelli got his championship campaign back on track and secured his seat on the MotoGP grid for next year. And we'll look back on the fantastic Moto3 race, isn't it always, as Aaron Canet beat Romano Finati for victory at the very last corner at Assen. Uh, we'll also look ahead to this weekend. MotoGP is going back to back as they head through the Netherlands to Germany and British Superbikes returns along with Leon Haslam at Snetterton in Norfolk this weekend as well. We'll look ahead to that before the end of the show. Uh, joining me this week once again is Andre Harrison. Warm welcome, Dre. They can't get rid of me these days. Um, yeah, he's actually what? doing double duty this week for the first time in, what, three weeks? <laughs> I, I am well and truly back. Um, again, like on this show, it's like, oh, it's, it's another week then. Whereas uh, the one, I have my, I have my, my grand return. Sadly, no, no wrestling themes to enter for me to enter to do this week. But uh, I am back. I'm here to review some bikes as well. And um, yeah, hopefully, I'll be a part of the furniture again. Yeah, no, no sign of the uh, Vince McMahon stomp, uh, stomp this time into the studio. Um, before we uh, move on, let's talk, you, talk to you about the various places you can find us, starting on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101, uh, if you want to get in touch with us that way. If you want to tweet us uh, and try and find Ryan King and you crush, you can at motorsport underscore 101. Um, just head to at motorsport101 if you don't understand that reference. Um, hey, you can also follow us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, if you haven't seen the uh, Google Hangout, which took place as the Azerbaijan Grand Prix was happening and that incident took place, make sure you do. Um, Motorsport 101's YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, our website is motorsport101.net, where you can find back episodes of each of our two podcasts, Motorsport 101 and Bike Live, and you can back us financially on Patreon as well, patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101. If you do so, you will earn yourself early access to Bike Live and to Motorsport 101, episode 93 is coming next weekend, the Mark Marquez edition. Um, and we may, may well next week, across our two shows, be talking about a Mark Marquez victory, if history is any indicator. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Um, but let's head on to uh, the MotoGP weekend in Aston then and talk about the thriller uh, in the Netherlands last weekend. And, I mean, Dre, MotoGP never ceases to surprise us these days. I mean, we, we said last week on the show we've given up predicting things on this show because it is so unpredictable nowadays in MotoGP. And uh, qualifying was leaving proof of that again. Uh, at Aston, where the weather intervened, as it often does in that part of the world, and we saw a first-time pole sitter in the form of Joan Zarco. Yeah, this, this was another weird qualifier. The rain was on and off all the way through Aston pretty much all weekend long, and towards the end of, of, of Saturday's running, it, it seemed to dry up towards the end, and as we as as we got there, it was it was you know it seems to be like it's 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 similar to a Formula One session in the sense of it seems to be the last man over the line will probably get pole position, and in this case, you know we had a couple of near ones. Marquez had a great had a great last lap in there, nearly had it. Danilo Petrucci was on a hot lap but lost it all in sector four. Yeah, he was but the it, last man. He was the last man over the line and probably should have had pole. 
yeah, he probably should have had his first career pole position, but didn't didn't quite get there. So in the end, it was Johan Zogger that took the opportunity with both hands and grabbed it. And again, it just goes to show you that uh, the form book means nothing in MotoGP anymore because there is no form book. Yeah, because when when was the last time a satellite was on pole position? Was it Crutchlow at Le Mans a few years ago? That might be. It must have been. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we had a leash on pole here on a on a forward Yamaha, didn't we? Um, two yes, years ago when did. it when it rained yeah. midway through a session, so that was wasn't really a true pole, if you like. He was he basically got a lap in early and then it rained. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's been a while since we've had that. It might well be Cal. Um, who did that? Because um, Bradley and Paul never had a pole on the Tech Three, did they? So um, if it's going to be anyone, it's going to be Cal, um, who, like- who earned that distinction. Um, but yeah, Zoran Zarco then on pole position. He took pole ahead of Mark Marquez and Daniel Petrucci, who took his second front row in as many races. Valentino Rossi at the front of the second row, and those four would break away early on. We had a four-man group at the front of the race, and Zarco as he has on many occasions this season, Dre, just showing how much he belongs there. And I don't know whether it was just me. Did it really strike you as well in those early stages how much respect Rossi and Marquez were paying him in those early laps? They were quite happy to follow Zarco around early on. Yeah, they know he's fast. They know it. Like, I mean, Marquez said it all in the press conference going into this round on Thursday where he said straight up, I look forward to following Zarco. And... <laughs> And, Z- and Marcus said, yeah, it was a surprise to see him on pole, but it wasn't that much of a surprise. He's very fast. And yeah, he like he, he seems to have already earned the respect of the paddock. I mean, when guys like Lynn Jarvis are coming out and saying, listen, Zarko's a great yardstick because of how fast he is. Like, it's the guy's raw speed is, is up there with the very best of them. And this is his eighth <laughs> MotoGP weekend we're talking about. It's crazy. It, like, like, we... I struggle to put it into words just how much of a revelation this man has been since he got in here. I mean, even more so given he's on a satellite bike. I mean, this wasn't a Marquez or a Maverick who have had, you know, factory seats right from the get-go. And, you know, they've, they've been given more resources to play with. It's not yeah, been... He, a... he didn't He didn't click immediately in either of the lower classes, did he? No, exactly. Like, Zarco won his world title in the fourth attempt in Moto2. He wasn't a a Maverick Vinales or a Mark Marquez who who were who were top tier players immediately in their classes. They were he wasn't like that. Zarco was a late bloomer. It took Zarco time to adapt. And, you know, that's I think that's probably why many people weren't so sure about him when he came up into the top class. I was one of those people. I hold my hands up. I was one of those guys that they're thinking, are we sure you know, he's warranted of a seat this high? Because Yeah, I kinda thought Folger would beat him. I've got to be honest. Yeah. I, I thought, thought Folger just had the, the greater upside, the, just the, yeah. those flashes of, of raw talent, which perhaps Zarco didn't have, but he's proven us all wrong. Um, and as I say, the front runners, Rossi, Marquez, and Petrucci were showing him the utmost respect in that early stage of the race as they followed him around, prepared to sit behind the, the rookie um, on his first MotoGP ride at Assen. We've already seen from Zarco twice now in eight races is that he's not quite so sure where the front of Valentino Rossi's Yamaha is. Um, we had another one where Rossi takes the lead from Zarco in the uh, in the first sector, takes the lead at turn one, and then runs wide around turn three. And um, I think this one pretty much falls into the category of racing incident, does it, Dre? Rossi kind of strayed a little bit wide. Zarco went for the gap, and the gap soon closed on him. Yeah, it's because it happened in the Moto2 race as well, I think, later on. Yeah, later on, on Morbidelli. Morbidelli had, had a very near one as well, but uh, it's... It's one of those it's one of those combinations of corners where you can take multiple lines if if you know what you're doing. And Zarco did take the narrower line. He had every right to have his bike where it was. And you know, unfortunately, Rossi's line was the long sweeping one. You know, cut off the apex as as best you can, and you know, keep the corner into. That's what, that's what the Yamaha likes to do. And unfortunately, it's the kind of track where those two paths are destined to collide. Unfortunately, and. 
as a result, Zarco did collide with him, and Zarco never really recovered from that. He was always at the back of the pack after that one. He couldn't find his way back through again on that leading pack of four. But um, yeah, nothing, yeah, nothing, nothing malicious there. Just a racing incident. It was a, it was one of those both guys had a, had had a right to the corner sort of situation, and you know, contact was inevitable on that one. But luckily, everybody stayed on piece. Only you know. A very minor um, punishment for Zarko in that case, or if, if, if you want to call it a punishment, really, it was just a very, a very minor collision. No harm, no foul. I'm glad. It, I'm glad that was the end of it. Yeah, and Keith, you made a very good point as well in commentary, and that it's pretty much a blind spot for the riders as well at that stage because you're hanging off the other side of the bike. You know, it's, yes. you're going around a right hander. You're hanging off the right hand side of the bike as someone comes at you from the left. So there's probably no reason for Zarko to to basically see Rossi at that point. And he probably would have been expecting Rossi to give him a bit more room than he did. And it, yeah, it was just one of those one of those incidents. Um, as you mentioned, Zarko fell to fourth at that point. He ended up at the back of the leading group, but he was still keeping pace with him. He was still solidly in the mix. Um, and one thing we can never really level at Zarko this year is that he's ever shown his inexperience uh, in MotoGP. Um, but for the first time, Dre, he arguably did show his inexperience when he got a bit too trigger-happy when the flag-to-flag rules came in. Yeah, oh... I, 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 I wanted to. We, we had a little chuckle. Me and my brother, when we watched this race together, going, "Oh no, oh Zarko's been that guy. He's yeah. been the first." Like, I of, really want this to work. Yeah, I really wanted it to work, but I think, I think it was always going to be too late in the race for that to work, unless yeah, it was he a tr- to piss it down, didn't he? He needed a torrential downpour for that to work, and it just wasn't going to happen there. And that's and it was too late in the day. Um, I think given it was about, what, eight laps to go, I think when the rain, I think when a slippery flag came out and the, you know, the white flag came out to dignify, this is officially a flag-to-flag race. Um, Zarko was the first guy to blink, and, well, I get it. I mean... It was it, worth it, the gamble to win the race, wasn't it, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, it says a lot about Johan Zarko if he, if he would have been disappointed with finishing fourth yeah. as, as a Hail Mary attempt to try and get the win. I mean, if you're willing to gamble that hard to be able to you know to roll the dice that hard to be able to try and win but yeah i mean why not in that situation you're you're tech free you're a satellite team you're not expected to win you know a fourth place wouldn't be it would be it would still be an excellent result for zarko but you know you look like a hero if you pull off the win it's one of those things where what's a few points to set free when Zarko's already been so good? He's already had a second, hasn't he, in, in our GP career already at Le Mans. So, yeah, why not? Why not go for it? Um, what we did see, I mean, we saw three other riders um, go for the change as well. Lorenzo, Barbara and Rins. But I think in their case, it was more the case of they were terrified at the prospect of riding around on slicks um, when the rain <laughs> came down. Um, but what we did see in the end with Zarko out of the picture was Rossi and Petrucci at the front, joined by Marquez. Um, and they were soon chased down by Andrea Davizioso. And you know, the, the overriding feeling I got watching that, Dre, was given the conditions, because before flag-to-flag rules came in, that would have been a red flag. You know, when yes. that rain came down, they'd have red-flagged it and stopped it immediately. Um, you know, they were giving riders the option to change bikes if they wanted, but you know, what we saw in those conditions on slicks was supreme rider skill and bravery. Yes, from, from everybody involved. Um, that was... That was borderline wet weather conditions, and that's why four riders blinked and went for the wet tires. I don't blame any of them because it was raining; it was only going to get worse. And if, if if there was a if there was a red flag, the rain would have been even heavier. Because I mean, if you saw some of the pictures after the race, it they turned into a downpour in Aston when they were packing up. Um, so if they if they had raced in their normal time slot, it would have been a full wet race, I reckon. So. If anything, the early time slot to avoid the Baku clash was um, actually kind of inspired. Yeah, it's uh, placed it up. 
Yeah, exactly. So, as you say, though, supreme bravery from everybody involved. I mean, nobody crashed it in no. those conditions either. I think, I think maybe Scott Redden at the end did, but that was about that it. Was just his tire was out of rubber. I think that was why he crashed. It wasn't really a wet weather crash. He just used up his front tire too much. And yeah, and, yeah, and what we saw in the end, Rossi and Petrucci broke away again. It looked at one stage as if we were heading for the uh, the three-peat for Andrea Vizioso after his two wins in the yeah, previous two rounds. Out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. He, he chased them down at two seconds a lap, and then once he got there, he couldn't really do anything about it. And it, it seemed with Rossi in particular, Dre, it seemed one of those classic examples of the guy in front just doesn't really want to push it. And once he sees someone go past him and sees them push, he then ups the pace again. Um, yeah. because, because Rossi was, you know, he looked like he was checking out in the dry conditions before it rained. Um, it looked like he was starting to run away with it. He had a one-second lead, um, which is big around Assen, it has to be said. Um, yes. So um, it looked like he was heading to victory until the rain came and Petrucci reeled him back in again. But um, to Rossi's credit, once Petrucci then overhauled him, which looked like an inevitability, um, Rossi seemed to, as I say, with a rider to follow a reference point ahead of him, Rossi upped his pace again. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing about weather conditions. You Nobody wants to be the guinea pig. Nobody wants to be the first guy to attack and then you know, not, not knowing what's in front of you. And then if you get it wrong, you're gone and your race is over. Remember, that's what Rossi did last year. Mm. A racer he was almost certainly going to win. He was leading. He'd seen Dovi crash in front of him already. And Rossi had a golden chance to win the race. And threw it away down the bottom at turn 10. I remember that. And that was a heartbreaker for Rossi. He was devastated mm. that one. And I don't think he was going to make the same mistake twice in two years. Petrucci was a fantastic yardstick for him to have because Petrucci is, well, bonkers, to say the <laughs> least. He doesn't give a shit. He, 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 will, he, will, like, he, is, he is relentless. He will go for the win or crash trying. So... When you have that sort of reference point in front of you, and Petrucci, who is a tremendous wet weather rider, as it is, and you know, and, when he, and that's your reference point. That's what you you can roll with that from there, and really embrace that. And yeah, that's what Rossi did, and it ended up being a winning decision for him. Yeah, it came down to the final lap between Rossi and Petrucci, who managed to gap Davizioso and Marquez again as they kind of fell back into the clutches of Cal Crutchlow, who was another rider towards the end to make rapid progress, is clearly feeling more confident in the conditions than the men ahead of him. Um, and the final lap, Dre, um, as Rossi and Petrucci carved their way through traffic, this was these were the aforementioned riders who changed bikes early on, uh, who found themselves struggling with next to no grip and a lap down as a result. Um, Daniel Petrucci basically blames the marshals for costing him a first win here. Um, Rossi, as always, the first man catching traffic had an advantage because they saw him coming and they perhaps didn't see Petrucci coming. Um, mm-hmm. And Petrucci, unfortunately, got carved up a bit by Rins as they went through the, the fast left at the end of the back straight. But I think we've got to have sympathy here for A, the marshals, and B, the back marks here, haven't they? Because that was far from a normal circumstance. I mean, when do MotoGP riders ever get lapped? Exactly. It's one of those... It's a very, very rare situation. No... Like, the sport is more competitive than it's ever been. And even when it wasn't, like, to lose maybe a minute and a half to two minutes in the space of a 45-minute race is rare um, by any circumstance. And, of course, it was the three dudes or three of the four dudes who had changed bikes in the early going and didn't work out. And they were, you know, uh, an, an alien level amount of time behind. behind. So Petrucci came up to them, and sadly, he, you know, he was caught out by... Rins didn't see it coming. And it's a shame, I mean... 
again, like, I don't think there's anybody to quote-unquote blame here because this, this was a freak circumstance. It wasn't... It was a rare situation you don't normally get in MotoGP. I think in the case of Rins as well, it was kind of unfortunate that the part of the circuit they caught it. Yeah, a very like the fastest part of the track. You're going over hundred. You're going over 150 miles an hour through there, even in the wet. And yeah, yeah. I, think, I think Rins was too busy trying not to fall off the road. In, in yeah, fairness. exactly. Yeah. So, so um, I can, yeah, you can you can sympathise with that. You can also sympathise with Petrucci, of course, because he uh, he was he did say after the race that he knew he had the speed in the final sector, and he proved it because he basically eliminated a half second lead in that final sector um, and very nearly got him on the line and Petrucci firmly believes had he not been involved in that that contretemps with traffic he would have been right behind Rossi and ready to make a move into that final chicane um so but it didn't happen yeah he was setting him up and um yeah it was just a thrilling battle between the two um between Rossi and Petrucci and we've seen this before with them in wet conditions haven't we in most notably at Silverstone a couple of years ago um but um we we did flag this up Dre didn't we last week if Valentino Rossi doesn't win at Assen where is he going to win um, in 2017, but um, to to his credit, we called this shot and Rossi delivered. Yep, yep, he absolutely did. I said if somebody put a gun to my head, I would put money on Valentino Rossi to win the race, <laughs> and I did. Go me. Yeah, you did. <laughs> so um, yeah, uh, well done to me for backing Valentino Rossi at three to one. Go me. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I take full credit for this. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was a tremendous ride from Valentino, and you know, I, I find it funny that Julian Ryder was absolutely gushing over this this latest Rossi victory, and you know, writing words for Superbike Planet saying that you know he's a once in an ever sort of talent. People. He's won over 100 Grand Prix. This is not going to be like the Pierre de Resistance of Valentino Rossi's career by winning by winning an Aston for the tenth time. But uh, no, this was an incredible performance. Again, it was a, a ride of true bravery from Valentino. He was always the first man in, like, he, into pretty much every situation that was thrown at him, from Marquez attacking him to, to Zarco attacking him to the rain coming down to Petrucci attacking him. Like the, the 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 front three through the house of Valentino Rossi on this one, and nobody had an answer for him in the end. And that was a vintage Valentino Rossi performance, and and he he handled that race of impeccable precision and class. Yeah, what we've done to accept Valentino over the years, really. yeah. In the end, it was the old head that uh, that basically held it all together. And you know, he hasn't always done that in previous years, has he? Obviously, obviously we saw the acid race last year that you mentioned. He did the same at Mategi last year when he was chasing Marquez and fell off. He, you know. He, he did it at Le Mans, of course, earlier this year when he was under pressure from Maverick and cracked. Um, but I, 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 I kind of wonder whether one of the reasons why everyone's so gushing, one of the obvious reasons is because it's Rossi. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's one of those where the older he gets, the more we keep sort of going, he's still winning? <laughs> he's 38 yes. and he's still winning? Um, and, he, and he set a new record in MotoGP, one of the many records Valentino Rossi owns in, in, this, in this sport. Um, he now owns the record for the longest winning career in Grand Prix motorcycle racing history. What that means is the longest gap between a first win and a last win. Um, mm-hmm. And there's no guarantee that this will be Rossi's last win either. Um, but Valentino Rossi is now, from his first win to Aston, 20 years, 313 days, knocking on 21 years of winning from Valentino Rossi. And there's only really one barren spell in all of that, and that was the Ducati yeah. years. Exactly, and yeah, he's so he's been winning races since 1996. That's yeah. I was four years old when he when he had his first win, and I just feel terrible and and old. I'm not even the oldest guy on this Most show. Most of the Moto Three grade hadn't even been born. <laughs> exactly, like that's that's terrifying. I was born in '92, and like God, that's 
that's terrifying to me. That uh, again, like again, how many riders in the Moto Three paddock are under the age of twenty years and three hundred and thirteen days? Probably, probably at least half of them, I would say. If I guess right now, but um, it, it, it's a testament that um, that Valentino Rossi will, will forever go down as the Moto GP rider that defied all conventional logic about just how good. Not just how good you can be, but how just a level, just a level of longevity. Mm. I mean, most riders aren't that great once they get into their early thirties. That's when the signs of decline start to kick in. We saw it with Loris Caparossi, Randy De Punier, and you know some older guys in their early thirties they start to decline. But Valentino Rossi is still a top three rider on the planet at thirty eight years old. This is unprecedented stuff. We've not seen this before in MotoGP, where a guy is a true contender for a world championship at 38. I mean, it, it makes you wonder how much longer we can keep this going, because he was talking about this at the press conference yesterday, where he said, listen, if I'm still competitive, I'm going to keep going. And it's like... No, there's no reason to think he won't be. Yeah, like next year will be his 20th season, I think, in the top class, which is just ridiculous, to say the least. And, I mean... What's who's to say he won't sign another contract and do another two years and ride until he's forty? I mean that if Max Biaggi can do it and we win a world title in World Superbikes at age forty, why can't Valentino Rossi continue that trend in uh, in MotoGP? So yeah, because you, you'd have thought with Valentino that well, with any rider really in this uh, this level of sport that you'd probably by the time that you reached thirty eight, you'd have probably passed your peak by now. You'd probably be well and truly oh, sure. on the hill and washed up. But you know if, if he's if he's still doing it at thirty eight, why can't you do it at forty? Um, Why not? Absolutely. And there was a funny question in the the Facebook Live that Gavin Emmett and Neil Hodgson did uh, yesterday from the Saxon Ring, where someone asked a question saying, would Valentino Rossi have as many championships as he has uh, in MotoGP if he'd been racing against the likes of Marquez and Lorenzo for his entire career? Um, and, and Neil Hodgson kind of gave the right answer, which was, it's a bit of a silly question because none of those riders have been able to match Rossi's longevity yet. Um, because they're later on uh, in their lives than Ross. They're, they're, you know, they were born later than him. So, you know, Rossi's longevity is such that he's not been racing. He's raced against three, two or three different generations of rider um, through his career and still been and successful. Deep, and deep into three decades deep as well. Deep into three decades. And he's at uh, one stage or another beaten them all, um, which, which, <laughs> which says it all about how, how well he's doing. And as you say, he could still win another world championship. He is right back in the mix now. Um, with the World Championship. Only 11 points covers the top four. We'll, we'll get into the other three championship contenders um, in a moment. But we have to talk briefly about Petrucci before we move on, Dre. Um, he has a bit of a hard luck story to tell, of course, given what happened on the final lap. But we kind of need to give up the... I think we probably already have anyway. But I think as a whole, MotoGP needs to give up the idea that Petrucci is just a wet weather rider. Now, he is a top-tier rider in all conditions now, surely. Yeah, he's, he's he's he might be the like like I know in, it's hard to say this in a season with the Hans Zarco, but he might be the breakout star of the year this year. The no Petrucci has been like he's gotten over the hump of just being labelled as a wet weather guy, which is something that I think Scott Redding probably still needs to shake his teammate across the paddock because he had a, he had multiply great wet performances last year, but never really in the dry. And Danilo. We saw it at Mugello. We he, he was right where he was he finished on the podium. Was challenging for the lead on multiple occasions. We saw it in Catalonia where yeah, he was, was running fifth top, when he fell off. Yeah, he was top five when he fell off there. And this is the third race in a row where on the GP17, you know he isn't he's delivered and he is he's up there if not beating the factory boys now. And this is it reminds me a lot of Iannone when when he had his breakout year at the Pramac team in 2015. I want to say, um, and. Yeah, it was. It was. It's a similar deal here, where Petrucci is now 
not just becoming just a great wet weather rider. He's now just becoming a great rider, period. And I, I said it on Twitter, and I, I talked about it post-race, and there was a great story about this that Matt Oxley, the great bike journalist, put out the other day talking about you know the 2014 season. is his, his, his first season for Pramac, I think it was, after, after for, his... T- uh, for the IOTA team, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was his first season after the terrible Frankenstein's monster of the IOTA CRT Aprilia project. And um, he instead of wearing all the sponsor caps you get in the class off photos, which you now see on those great MotoGP game intros you now get um, every year. But um, like instead of wearing a rider's cap with a sponsor on it, he wrote, he wrote a cap that said love on it. And it said love on it because... He couldn't believe how lucky he was yeah. to get a bike that wasn't a CRT. So he said, "Listen, I'm not gonna." He said to himself, "Listen, I'm just, I'm just gonna make friends with everybody. I'm gonna be nice to everybody. I don't care that, you know, if, if about you know rivalries. And I'm just happy to be here." And seeing him now, three years later, now as a top ten rider on the planet, and as a guy that is one of the true gems, one of the true good dudes of the MotoGP paddock, it's it's a pleasure to see Danilo Petrucci up there, and it says a lot about how great his run of form has been when he looked genuinely gutted to finish a race in second, mm. which kind of says it all, really. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's got a design much higher than that now. And, uh, and yeah, the, he's, he is one of the true nice guys, although his relationship with his girlfriend might be on slightly rockier ground now after his, uh, <laughs> after his interview in the, uh, to one of the fan questions on, on Thursday at Saxon Ring. Uh, check it out on the Facebook page of MotoGP, their official Facebook. If you haven't seen it, it is a very, very funny answer to a question. Oh, well, yeah. he's, he's basically asked the question, if your girlfriend told you to quit motorcycle racing, what would you do? <laughs> I won't give you his answer. Just go and watch it. But it is very, very funny. It had Mark Marquez belly laughing um, <laughs> as a result of it. Um, so he hasn't lost that sense of humour, even with his uh, relative success um, so far this year. Um, Mark Marquez um, had very re- every reason to be happy last weekend too. He came through to third in the end. Although, as I mentioned earlier on, he got chased down by Cal Crutchlow in the closing stages and Acosta Vizioso, who had chased down that leading group too. Um, but Mark Marquez, through bravery, if nothing else, Dre, managed to get the better of Cal at the end. Like in a battle of the of the Cojones, Mark Marquez will almost always win. He's he, he's ridiculous, and it's, it's easy to forget that sometimes. That again, he was he always looked like he was struggling a little bit more. And I think Marquez, like Dovi, who openly admitted it, he was thinking about the championship when he finished in. I think it was in fifth place in the end in this race where Dovi said. I think that's the first time I've ever heard Dovi say I was thinking about the championship, which says a lot about this season in general. Yeah. But yeah, Marquez was completely fearless, and it was a like you, you could make the, a very valid case that that was a move that Marquez did not need to make um, in the grand scheme. I mean, this was already a big win for him this weekend to get back into the top four or five in a weekend where Vinales had crashed, um, and you know Pedrosa wasn't really in the mix. Dovi was behind him still, so it was still overall a pretty good result if he had finished in fourth, but that's not what Mar- Marquez does. He, he, he was thinking of the extra three points, he was thinking of the podium finish, and he, he nailed Crutchlow right at the end, and I think even Cal was like, well, that was a good move, man. Um, and yeah, a, a, a bold, a brave podium, and that's the Mark Marquez we know and love, and that was a... A, a, a highly unnecessary yet completely brilliant last overtake to finish on the podium and uh, a well-deserved third place. Fortune still can favour the brave in this sport sometimes. Yeah, he might well look at the end of this season, the way this championship is going, that he might well 
thankful they got those extra three points because um, it looks like it might be a very, very close championship between a number of riders um, later on in this season. Um, and what was interesting in, in Mark Marquez's post-race interview um, when he spoke to NCN was that um, he said that his experience with Valentino from a couple of years ago at that circuit basically told him that um, in his words, my experience of Valentino in 2015, I knew that I preferred to arrive at the last chicane first. Um, so I made my move before <laughs> that um, to make sure of the third position. He basically decided to make the move at the fast ramshuck, the left-hander, um, which if uh, anyone who saw the Moto2 qualifying session, it can really, really hurt you if you get that wrong oh. in the wet. Um, so that just gives you an idea of how brave um, Matt Marquez was to pull that move uh, on Cal Crutchlow. Crutchlow taking fourth straight, and we often get this sort of... It's not a hard look story, but we often get riders thinking at the end, if only this race had been one lap longer. I think Cal would be one of those. Yeah, he'd have, I think he'd have loved another lap. I think Crutchlow was one of those dudes who, again, when the wait, when, when the rain comes down, he just has this like incredible level of confidence that a, a load of riders just don't normally have. And we saw it. We saw Dovi take two seconds a lap out of the field. Crutchlow was right along there with him. And, yeah, the race was one or two laps longer than who knows. The extra confidence might have brought them into play for the win even. So... Yeah, it was it was one of those cases where those last eight laps, whoever was going to be the most brave and could ride that line between bravery and stupidity would have reaped the rewards, and Crutchlow probably would have been one of those dudes. And uh, yeah, I think he'll still take a fourth place, no question, given the way his season's been so up and down. Yeah, he'll uh, he'll take a fourth, and under the circumstances, Andre Vizioso will have certainly taken a fifth. Um, although it did, as I say, look with four or five laps to go that he could win it, um, the way he was catching them, but. Um, as you mentioned earlier on, um, he said he was thinking of the championship in that latter stages of the race. And I guess that tells us a lot because uh, a lot of people from the outside have been almost having to work hard to take Dovi seriously as a championship contender because he's not been in this position before. Um, but what's clear from Dovizioso's comments after the race is that he certainly takes himself seriously. Absolutely. I didn't quite hear that last bit there, Sadie. He certainly takes himself seriously as a championship contender. Oh god, yeah. Like, like I said, that was the first time that I've seen I've seen Dovi um, basically think about the title in the grand scheme of things. And again, his speed was there, the precision was there, the, the, the dedication was there. But he actually held himself back for a second and realized, wait a minute, it's not worth it. It's not worth the extra five or six points here. If if I if I fall off the bike and, and lose the championship lead back to Valentino and. You know, Dovi was thinking of the bigger picture here, and that's something that I never thought you you would guess to say at the start of this season. But that's the situation right now, where Davizioso has a shot here, and he's probably thinking, if I can just bide my time here until the next wet race, or maybe Austria after the break, and you know, another round they'll be very, very strong at, then you know, he could be, he could, he could, he could cash out some good points there. But uh, he'll take the fifth place. Ducati weren't really. Uh, he well, Dovi himself wasn't really in the mix in the race itself in the dry, so the rain gave him probably a couple of places he didn't deserve in the grand scheme of things on on merit alone. So, yeah, he'll take the fifth place for sure. One, one, one to keep an eye on though. Yeah, we we need to kind of almost repeat it just to for it to sound real. I mean, it's a measure of how well he's done this season, and well, it's not like we're still at an early stage of the season where sometimes you get some odd results and some odd championship positions. Like Scott Redding was fourth in the championship after a couple of rounds earlier this year see how mixed up it was but we are eight rounds in now we are one round short of the halfway mark in the season and andrea davizioso for ducati is the MotoGP world championship leader huh? 
Like, to try and take that in, and I put that into context of how good a job he's done. Like what? Huh? Who? Huh? Um, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, quite frankly, I was telling my brother this the other day. I was like, listen, how have we had five winners in the first seven races, and somehow it, the season is even more unpredictable than it was last year? It's, It doesn't feel like it, yet here we are, where... Right now, every rider in the top five has had moments where they look like they can win this title. Even Danny Pedrosa, to a degree, who you know, you know, had that brilliant win in her F. Mark Marquez, who on his track is still practically unbeatable, but threw away an easy win in Argentina, more unlikely. Rossi, who's has had bad races on tires. Davizioso, who has been Mr. Consistency. And that's what it's been. He's finished every race. This season in the top five outside of Argentina, where he was collected by Alish. So, like, right now, Alish has made the least amount of mistakes and critical errors, and that's what's been his ultimate, you know, reward here. He's now leading a championship that doesn't have an outright top contender right now, and that's what makes it so crazy. And there's no reason to think that he's going to go away either. I mean, he said after today in free practice at the Saxon where he was quickest in, in the only dry session we got. Practice one was dry, practice two was wet. Um, Dolby said that it pretty much validates the good work they've done over the previous three rounds to basically find out that they've gone to another different kind of track that Saxon Ring is, and they were still quick. Um, so that kind of gives Davizioso the hope that they can be quick anywhere, and he's got, in two rounds' time, he's got the arguably the Ducati banker of, of Austria coming up. Exactly. So, again, he's, he's going to be thinking, I've got a really, really great chance of winning at least one more round this, this season, and the way it's going, that could be enough. I mean, the way that... You know, Maverick is, you know, probably got the 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 all rounder in terms of ultimate pace, but has made critical mistakes in races now and is opened the door for other people. Valentino Rossi again probably hasn't got the upside to win five or six races a year anymore, but he doesn't go away and he doesn't make very many mistakes. Marquez is still Marquez, where he can win almost any given round if he tries hard enough, but he's now thinking about the championship. And when you, you factor all this in together and Dovi, who's basically playing the Marquez role right now of riding conservatively, but doing enough, you know, taking the chances where you can get them. And it's, it's, it's reaping rewards right now. And that's what's working out for him. Absolutely. Um, we have to talk about the ex championship leaders. We have to call him now. Maverick Vinales, who, um, Dre, it's fair to say that he wasn't really quick at any stage. Was he, uh, apart from free practice one, where or free practice two, where he was quickest, he never really, recovered from he never really picked up from there in free practice three uh, in the wet he was on mid pack in qualifying he was 11th on the grid and then even though he got himself to the front of the second group in the race he was never really chasing the leaders down and what what does maverick vinales you know what will his mindset be after this is there any reason to panic just yet i mean it's been two bad races on the trot for him now um for maverick vinales and is that just a mid-season lull or are there reasons to be really really sort of pessimistic and concerned here for maverick he had a 26-point lead two rounds ago, and now he's four behind. Yeah, six points coming out of the last two rounds for, for Maverick Vinales. It's not a good look. Um, I don't know. It's a short answer. It's a short answer on this one, and I'm I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, a lot of talk has been made about Yamaha changing chassis around. Rossi's going back to something that resembles more something towards last year to get the bike back to where he where he was happy. Maverick's on this 2017 chassis that he's seemingly not liking so much with the new front tires. And yeah, it's a little bit all over the place right now where it's easy to forget one thing, and it's been very easy to forget this one simple thing regarding the season because of how good he was early going. 
this is a brand new team to Maverick Vinales. And that is something that we've seemingly glossed over only because of how friggin' fast he's been all season long. Well, where... yeah, it's interesting because Yamaha, uh, Valentino Rossi even said in, in after the race on Sunday in Aston, he almost said that Maverick Vinales' amazing early season form has almost lulled Yamaha into thinking that everything was fine with their bike because Maverick was so good early on. Uh, exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't until they got to those low grip circuits of Jerez and Catalonia that they realized there was a serious problem there. Yeah, like that, that's a very good point Valentino's made there. It's like, because remember, Maverick was saying at the end of Qatar, the bike's ready to go. The first Qatar test, he was so confident that this bike's amazing. This bike is perfect. He was topping almost every timesheet. He won the opening round, was championship favorite to win, and has been pretty much ever since. And yeah, it's been all sorts of. Like again, like you say, it was all dreamland really in, until Haref, where they both got shown up by by other bikes in the field, where Yamaha struggled on low grip circuits, and now we're all sitting here thinking, wait a minute, does this Yamaha have a fundamental problem here? Because it's looking like you know Rossi won this round, but Maverick Vinales struggled, and Vinales crashed. It was a very weird accident. He lost the rear of the bike completely round the chicane, which you don't normally see. Everyone was just a seemingly I was very uh, lucky not to get run over by Davizioso too. Exactly, it was a god. It was that could have been a lot worse than, than how it turned out in the end. But yeah, like like Rossi said, it seems like they were flying so high. Pardon the pun regarding Maverick, <laughs> and it's it's like they've come to the to the European chunk of the season now, where where tracks are a bit more conventional, and they've gone there and they've gone. Wait a minute, this is this isn't quite right here. And the Yamaha looks like they've got some sort of grip problem with their bike where you, the, the chassis they've got now and the combination of that and Michelin isn't working because Maverick's suffering out there. And the question is, is that, do you want to go back to last year? It was, I mean, has, has Johan Zarco made last year all the more appealing given he's on last year's bike? Um, there's a lot of questions in the, the Yamaha are going to have to ask in the cup. And there's a lot of questions that Maverick's going to be have to be asking because again we've seen pre-practice Maverick is not really in play right now he's 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 not looking like the number one guy that he, he was going through the first three or four rounds of the season and you know going into the break if Maverick's not championship leader after winning two rounds and seemingly looking like he was near invincible on paper and he, I mean, he gave Marquez a good fright on his, on his best circuit at Cota earlier this year as well so for all that to happen there's a lot of question marks in that Yamaha camp right now, which is funny given that they've got first and third in the championship right now. Yeah, my big worry if I was Maverick is that it almost looks to me from the outside as if there's a bit of the Jorge Lorenzo sy syndrome kicking in, where you know, when his confidence takes a dent, he's just not the same rider. Um, I mean, we, we've seen it on a number of occasions this season, and it, it's the key to winning any world championship in motorsport, as, as many people will tell you. Um, you know, on his worst days at the moment this season, Maverick Vinales simply isn't limiting the damage, is he? No, and like, there seems to be no compromise with Maverick. It's either he is brilliant and he will win you a race by a handful of seconds, or he's going to be down the midfield struggling. And I mean, the guys he were running with are no slouches, but they are guys we expect Maverick to beat on the machinery that he's on, like Andrea Davizioso, like Jack Miller, like Cal Crutchlow, like Danny Pedrosa. Those are guys that we that on on paper we think Maverick should be ahead of, quite frankly. So. Yeah, it's all sorts of weird right now, and I don't know what the answer is for Maverick Vinales and Co. So uh, I don't know. You tell me, like I guess as Jody and Palmer would say yeah. last, I, I don't quite know uh, what the answer is for that camp right now because 
yeah, it's not a, it's not a bad thing to have Valentino Rossi still be this good. And let's be real, here, this is Yamaha. That's clearly the guy they want in front. But you know, it's, like you know, you you invested all this money. Like Maverick is your rider of the future. You've clearly chosen Maverick as your guy, and Valentino Rossi is not going to be around forever. You've got to set your next man up to to do great things and. Right now, like they're, they're, a ball has been dropped in that in that side of the Yamaha garage, it needs to be picked up quick before the other guys start to override him. Yeah, you, you almost get the feeling that the tide's starting to turn in that team, don't you? With with Valentino yes. Maverick, which it would be a concern to Maverick Vinales heading into the summer, and you, you certainly won't want to head into the summer break on the back of another bad showing this weekend at the Saxon Ring. Um, so it's going to be fascinating because he was quick in the dry this morning. He was second quickest in free practice today. Um, mm-hmm. with Maverick Vinales, but in the way, in the afternoon, he was nowhere. He was down at 18th. So, yeah, it's going to be fascinating this weekend, given what the weather's going to do, which we frankly have no idea at the moment in the Saxon Ring. It's likely to be wet tomorrow, dry on Sunday, uh, or wet today as you listen to this. Um, that you know, Maverick might well have the pace, but he might well find himself deep on the grid if, he's, if he struggles uh, in the wet. So it's going to be fascinating to see how Maverick responds to this because... Um, He's really. This is the first major crisis he's been faced with so far this season. He's been. It's been so so much plain sailing for him for a lot of this season that he's not really had to think as much. He's just basically gone on the bike, ridden it as fast as he can, and picked up a trophy and some champagne at the end of it. Now he's actually going to have to really think about this and try and get his season back on track. Cause at the moment, as I say, there is a bit of a mini crisis building uh, for Maverick Vinales. Um, well, let's talk about some of the other riders who came away from Aston with positive memories from their weekend, shall we say. No, no less Jack Miller, who has the mother of all positive memories from Aston from last year when he won the Grand Prix um, in such memorable circumstances. But now, Dre, his two best career results have come at Aston. A win last year and now sixth this year. He's Jack Miller. Welcome back to Jackass. <laughs> and um, Yeah, that's the phrase. Um, yeah, exactly. Great stuff from Jack Miller again. <laughs> the man is fearless. He really is. It's just one of those things where... No matter what conditions are, Miller will ride 100% to the finish. And sometimes it, it works out beautifully. And this was another case where it did. A lot of attrition in front of him, in all fairness. But that's that's part of the game we play at Assen. And it's, it's a rider's circuit. And if, if you ride well, you will be rewarded for it. And that's exactly what happened here. A great ride from Jack Miller. And again, nice to see that his two best results have come at Assen. And, uh, and another changeable conditions race as well. Carol Abraham just behind him in seventh. Remember when we used to question the decision from the Aspar team to bring him back? Um, so much GP. Right. Yeah, he's doing all right. And, you know, not just that front row in Argentina, but seventh position. And he got um, Loris Baz and... I forget the other rider. Loris Baz and Andre Inone on the final lap. And seventh place for Carol Abraham. There won't be, won't be many results in his much GP career that match up to that. The guy's doing a cracking job. Absolutely. He's, he's doing what, what a number two rider should do. And that was... Basically, just stick around and, you know, don't make any mistakes. Ride your race and see what happens. And that's what happened with Carol Abraham. And you're absolutely right. I mean, we've we've thrown he's, – he's been the easy target of the pay driver tag or pay rider tag in MotoGP in the last year or so. But he's coming back and he's justifying his, his appeal right now. He's doing a great, great job. Mm. Yeah, and now on to a story that you've probably heard a few times before um, in MotoGP. Um, and it's the tale of the number 99. Um, and oh, no. Jorge Lorenzo, who, whose teammate's the championship leader, let us not forget. Um, but yet another classic example, Dre, that Jorge Lorenzo, Assen, and the wet just do not mix. It just doesn't, does it? Poor guy. Um, like, we all know Assen's is bogey track. We all know why that is. And Qualified 21st. Worst his, ever in MotoGP. 
Yeah. Worst ever MotoGP qualifying position. That kind of says it all. He just doesn't like Aston. He doesn't like wet races. So what did we get? A wet Aston race. So basically, Jorge Lorenzo's worst nightmare. Zero confidence. Zero grip. Um, visual rain on the on the on the visor. Key few in quotes. You name it. It's 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 a nightmare for all involved. Um, and yeah, just a. Uh, it, 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 sadly, it kind of proves what KTM was saying at the start. They said, "Well, why are you spending twelve million pounds a year on a, on a Ducati rider who can't ride in the wet?" And you know, Petrucci finishes second, and you know, Dovi was in the top five and probably could have had a lot better if the rain had come down slightly earlier. And Jorge Lorenzo is towards the back. Um, no matter which way you slice it. It's not a good look. Yeah, and the the look on Davide Tardozzi's face after qualifying really said it all. He had a face like thunder um, when and Jorge Lorenzo qualified, well, 21st, 11th in Q1. He only had Bradley Smith and Tito Rabat behind him, um, one who's arguably out of his depth in MotoGP and one who's on a KTM that's only just entered the series. And you know, Jorge Lorenzo should be a hell of a lot higher up on that, no matter how uh, concerned or afraid he's feeling. Uh, in the conditions because he's a class uh, class act he's a world champion and um it's i think it's still way too early to talk about ducati abandoning this project as as some have discussed again after this talking about whether they're going to give up on on lorenzo after this but surely ducati can't give up on Jorge lorenzo dre because they spent so much money on this that it would be if nothing else seen as ducati losing face if they give give up on him they they, they bet the mortgage on him this is literally betting the house on red and it turns up black. It's it's not a good look. Um, again, like you said, the, the, like this project is going to cost Ducati at least 25 million quid because it was a two-year deal for Lorenzo to go over there. And I'm, I mean, you can't throw in the towel here. Like, you're, you, you've invested too much in this. Like, yeah. you can't... Like, like, if you gave Valentino Rossi two years, you've got to give Jorge Lorenzo two years, surely. And, you know, there's always, a, there's always a, you know, a chance that Lorenzo will recover. The problem I have, if you're Jorge Lorenzo, is Yamaha going to take him back? I don't think they will. No. Like, because Valentino Rossi is still the guy, and Maverick Vinales right now is basically Jorge Light. Um, so, the way it's going right now, like... It's sort of hard to justify, like, the Yamaha clearing either of their riders out to bring Jorge Lorenzo back. Now, I'm not saying this year is a write-off. Far from it. I think there's still a ways to go yet. Uh, I'm not saying the experiment is a bust. What I am saying is Lorenzo needs to raise his game and quick. Otherwise, his, his season's going to be a complete write-off. And Ducati's going to be saying, okay, we're all in on Davizioso. Because, trust me. The way that 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 Ducati factory was celebrating after Dovi won in Dovi won in Mugello and he was back in the factory and he was getting a standing ovation and the workers chanting his name. Um, the way it's going, it looks like that Ducati team is built around one guy and it's not the 99. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, yeah, Ducati signed Jorge Lorenzo to win themselves the World Championship. And they might well do that. It just, it's just going to be his teammate that does it um, yeah. towards the end of this season, which will be the mother of all ironies, um, given that Davizioso was the rider that many, including probably us on this show, thought that should be dropped to uh, make way for Jorge Lorenzo. Um, you know, and having another poor weekend as it goes in uh, in Aston, although he did get ninth in the end. Um, now for another story you've heard before in MotoGP this season. Sam Lowe's at odds with Aprilia. Um, and oh, on oh. this occasion, Dre, um, the guy with the last laugh, certainly on Saturday at any rate, would be Sam Lowe's because the team have pretty much called him out and said he needs to improve if he wants to keep his job. 
Sam right. Rose then sticks it to Aprilia by getting himself into Q2 at the expense of Alicia Spargo on the better bike, his teammate. And then the bike blows up on him in Q2. Way to say F you to the man right there, Sam Rose. <laughs> that was... That was some impressive and some brave stuff to get into Q2. And, I mean, that was a very competitive session. A lot of really great names in there. A lot of guys that on another day could have very easily um, taken that spot. So, yeah, very impressive indeed from, from Sam Lowe's. And, yeah, it, it kind of, like if you wanted a visual representation of the pickle that Sam Lowe's is most likely <laughs> in, then nothing says it to me more than Sam Lowe's making Q2 and having the boss of Aprilia eat a slice of humble pie, saying that was the reason why we signed him, only yeah. for the, only for the bike to literally go pop eight minutes later. Way to go, Aprilia! Yeah. Way to go. yeah, maybe give your rider the equipment and the machinery to do the job, and he might well do it. Um, will be will be answer to that. I had a great. So sorry to cut you, but I had a great a great line. I saw David Emmett tweet about this. He said it was a a fully sarcastic tweet from David Emmett in the media centre during Aston, where, he, where where one member of the press goes, "Oh, so they did give Sam the new engine then?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cause it went bang in um, pretty no uncertain terms on on Saturday in Q two, and you know you still even with that injury, Bob, you still out qualified the championship leader Maverick Vinales and Danny Pedrosa. Um, yeah. In that Q2 session, of course, his teammate as well, who didn't make it out of Q1 because of Sam Lowe's performance. So um, it's just a real shame that he crashed in the race because if he'd have just cut that off with some points on Sunday, then it would have been the perfect weekend for Sam. As it was, uh, it didn't happen. Uh, here's how the race did finish then. Uh, Rossi, the winner for the first time since Catalonia last year from Petrucci and Marquez. That was your podium. Crutchlow in fourth ahead of Divizioso. Jack Miller in sixth. Carol Abraham seventh. Loris Baz in eighth. Andrei Ino in ninth. And Alicia Spargo, the one of Prudia to make the finish line in tenth. Uh, just ahead of his brother, Paul, who was the first and only KTM. I see the checker flag. Bradley Smith crashed. Uh, Tito Rabat was twelfth. Danny Pedrosa, who um, would be, you'd be forgiven for thinking, looking at the result, that he changed bikes too. He didn't. He was just that slow and finished thirteenth. Uh, oh. Zarco bursted the guys to change in fourteenth. Uh, and then the three lap runners, Lorenzo, Barber, and Rins. Lorenzo getting the final point for fifteenth position. Uh, championship standings all look like this. Who would have ever imagined it would be this close, eight rounds in to the season? Davizioso on 115, four ahead of Vinales, who's three ahead of Rossi, who's four ahead of Marquez. 11 points covers the top four after eight races uh, of this season. Danny Pedrosa is only 17 behind Marquez in fifth, so he's far from out of it. Neither is Zarco, who's only 10 off Pedrosa in sixth. Then comes Daniel Petrucci, who's climbed all the way to 70s ahead of Lorenzo now in the World Championship on the same bike. Hell. Petrucci 7th on 62, then Lorenzo on 60 and 8th. Crutchlow is up to 9th on 58, and Jonas Folger, who lost his record of being the only rider in MotoGP to finish and score in every race, he crashed out of the weekend. He has dropped to 10th in the World Championship. Moto2 next, because even Moto2 was good this weekend uh, at Assen, although it was probably a little too eventful and dramatic for our own liking on Saturday, Dre, a crash-tastic qualifying session, um, which saw the last for this weekend and for the foreseeable future until the end of the summer break of Lorenzo Baldessari. Horrendous wreck. Oh my god. Um, I, I I had the arguably fortunate position of not being able to see Moto2 qualifying live on TV, 
But um, it was Jalopnik that posted the uncensored accident of what happened. Because sadly, there's no avoiding it. It was always going to be footage of it because the hard camera caught it as it happened. And, um, oh, man, that like that was a sickening fud when Lorenzo Baldessari hit the deck on that one. He's He was flung off from the penultimate corner before the chicane. And, yeah, it was... It, it, it was it was straight down. I've never seen, like, you, you see you see high sides like that all the time in bike racing, but I've I can't remember the last time I saw one with a fud that big. And like Pecco Bagnaia had a really bad one. He landed oh, on his head. Yeah. He landed on his head and he walked away. It was like I was like how? Um, it, it was ridiculous. And then still qualified twelfth after that as well, <laughs> which is remarkable. Um, Cortese had one as well at the same corner, the Ramshook, where he lost control and on the wet patch and. Um, was very lucky that his cartwheeling bike didn't hit him as he was sliding through the grass. And yeah, it's just proof around Assen of you know when there are damp patches around, beware because if you lose it around there, you're not going to have a slow accident around Assen. Uh, unfortunately, no. um, into Sunday and the race we got because Moto Two was the final race of the day. So by this point, the rain that had fallen at the end of the Moto GP race had subsided and we had a dry track for the Moto Two race. And after the two races he's just had, Dre Franco Morbidelli kind of had the first, kind of like Vinales at the moment, had the first sort of mini crisis of his Moto Two championship season, uh, where there were some genuine questions asked of him. And to his great credit, he came up with the answers on Sunday. It's just a shame nobody saw it because it crashed with the first ten minutes of Baku. Mm. But um, well done, Dorna. What great job working that one around the TV schedule. But um, yeah, like you say, it was a it was a tremendous fight. I mean, it was great seeing a leading group of six basically mm. for the vast majority of the race. But at the end, it was the top two that broke off. It was Frankie Morbidelli versus Thomas Luthi, the two best riders in the class right now, and. It was Morbidelli that shut it down in a turn 10. And, you know, he was able to hold off Luti to the finish line. It was a nervous time for me. I didn't just say, if you haven't <laughs> yeah. seen the first 15 minutes or the first 20 minutes of our, of our Baku hangout on, on our YouTube channel, there may or may not have been like 125 quid riding on that, riding on that result for me. So... I was kind of nervous, uh, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, never has Drake heard so much about a Moto2 race. Never. Not in a million years. Um, and I, never, I probably never will again. Um, but yeah, like I said, it was it was a tremendous result. Um, a, a fantastic fight. And I'm glad that, you know, Frankie, I mean, they, they very subtly announced it during the race. That, oh, yeah, Frankie's joining MotoGP, by the way, as in the middle <laughs> race itself. Like, what? Well, Mark VDS, you've got, you've, got, you've got to time these press releases a little bit better. Maybe wait like an hour. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, like I said, Frankie, we, we've questioned his maybe his, his bottle more than anything else, given his his struggles recently, his lack of pace that he's shown has been a bit of an eyebrow raiser, given his early brilliance. But this was, this might be the pick of the bunch for Frankie Morbidelli's win so far. This was a tough gritty pack race that he had to really ride out of his skin to be able to win because we all know Aston is a track where it's very easy it's, it's very very hard to break off from a group and you know the rider will make the difference and and Thomas and Thomas Luti has, has been the pest that will not go away this season so and, and you know, Luti could have very easily won that race on another day so for Frankie to come out and overcome him and come out on top and basically just re-establish the fact that, yes, he is the guy in this championship to beat. Brilliant ride. And, God, five wins in eight rounds. That's that's terrifying form, um, in, no matter which way you slice it. Yeah, you'd think you'd have a bigger championship lead with that kind of record, wouldn't you? But we'll uh, we'll come on to why in a moment when we talk about Thomas Luthi. But, but, yeah, I mean, no one's ever doubted Franco's talent this year. He's been so quick at so many stages. But 
Um, he answered some mental questions, didn't he, on this occasion? Because his two previous weekends where he'd really not even been anywhere near the fight for the win. He was a distant and lonely fourth at Mugello, and then he was a very distant sixth um, in Catalonia as well. Um, we were asking questions on this show as to whether Luti and Marquez were going to chase him down. So he's answered some very serious questions here, hasn't he? Exactly. Um, some questions were asked on this one, and questions have been asked of Frankie for the last three or four rounds. Where His, I, his previous wins weren't really pack races either, were they? No, there were races where he got the lead early on, it dictated the pace, and nobody really had an answer for him. Even, I mean, Argentina, maybe less because it was, you know, Alex Marquez and Miguel Oliveira that were in the leading group, but Marquez basically, basically, um, you know, didn't have an answer for him. And when he tried really too hard to, to chase Morbidelli, he crashed, and Morbidelli broke him that day. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's been races where Morbidelli is left from the front. And, you know, he's he's basically asked the question of the others in the field to say, well, come and get me, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this was not that. This was a pack race where Frankie was running as low as fifth at one point, and he was still able to get to the front and go on to win. And this was some really great riders in there. Again, Thomas Saluti was in there. Takanakagami, who won here two years ago, um, was, in, was in there. Alex Marquez was in there. Matteo Pacini, who's been the man in form lately. Um, so you've got all sorts of great riders in there and again Morbidelli found a way to come out on top it was a very gritty determined ride that showed probably a little bit more of Morbidelli's game that we haven't seen so much in Moto2 so far and you know that, that could be another box ticked on the but is Frankie ready for the big time sort of the conversation because I think he is. Yeah, and, uh, as Dre mentioned, he has been confirmed in MotoGP as well. We'll come on to that a little bit later on. I was kind of happy as well this week, Dre, to see rumours linking Tom Luti with a MotoGP rider. There were rumours that LCR were interested in him uh, if the Nakagami move fell through. And um, I was delighted to see that. The MotoGP teams are really taking Thomas Luti seriously and looking at him for, as a potential MotoGP rider of the future, even though if it's going to happen for him, it's going to have to happen now, given the age he's at. Um, but... Even in his best years in Moto2, because he's basically been a perennial frontrunner in his Moto2 career, but mm. I, think, I think I'm right in saying he has never, in any of those Moto2 two, two seasons, had as many podiums as he's had this season. And we're only eight races in. Correct. His previous best in a season, and this is his eighth season in Moto2, because he's been there from the very start in 2010. Uh, this is the eight, this is his eighth season in the, in, in the intermediate class. Um, he's never had more than six podiums in a season until this year. He's had seven. seven. Out of eight. Seven out of eight so far this season. The guy's been very, very impressive. He's found he's found a way. Okay, we, like, we know Luti's always been good for a couple of wins a year, but maybe he's not winning. But at least now the bad days aren't so bad. Where he's now finishing on the podium, and he's giving like he's never letting Frankie Morbidelli get out of his sight. And if Frankie has a bad round, Luti is punishing him. It's as simple as that because Luti is going to finish in the top three or four pretty much regardless now in, in Moto2. He's, he's that good. He's now the complete all-rounder that, that we've always thought Thomas Luti could be. And, and yeah, like you say, I'm glad that MotoGP teams are having a look because this is a guy you can build a team around. He's just a solid, complete, all-round rider that's not going to make you many mistakes. And, and, you know, he will ride within the capable limits of a bike. And, and that's... There's always value in that, and I'm glad that, and I'm glad that um, you know Thomas Luti is out there, you know, showing his stuff, you know, getting MotoGP team attention despite the fact he's 30 years old now. He's 30, he's 30, he's 31 next month, mm. but um, despite that, you know, he's he's still being looked at for top tier rides because the guy's a damn good rider. Like age, 
age shouldn't be so much a factor in it. I know people are looking for aliens, but the reality is that you're not going to find them every single year or every time there's a new crop of talent that's coming into Moto2. Sometimes a safe pair of hands is the best pair of hands, and I'm glad Thomas Uti is proving that right. I mean, seven podiums in eight races is fantastic, no matter which way you slice it. Yeah, fast, fast is fast, whether you're 17 or 27 or 38. In Rossi's case, fast is fast, and you know if you've got that outright pace, then teams are going to want to sign you, and, and Thomas Uti is doing a brilliant job. And yeah, he's keeping that intense pressure on Morbidelli. He he's continuing to ask Morbidelli question can you handle this um, and can you stand the heat of this championship battle because as you say even though he's not won a race Luti's still there and without getting too stereotypical about someone from Switzerland um, he doesn't seem to be flustered at all you never really see Thomas Luti as the kind of rider that cracks under pressure do you um, he's such a such a professional just so ice cool so was, was that a Swiss joke <laughs> no, no, as I say, I'm trying not to get too stereotypical here, but as Julian Ryder said today, it, it's a cliche, but it's also a truism. It actually does apply uh, to Thomas Lutie because you know, he just doesn't seem to crack, does he? There doesn't seem to be any chink in his armour right now, albeit he's not winning races, but Thomas Lutie is maximising his points tally from this season to the absolute limit. Swiss jokes, shame on you. Um, but, uh, I no. mentioned the word watch at least once there, so I did all right. Uh, okay you win this round but um yeah you're absolutely right there's no argument with that like thomas luti is not making mistakes he's reliable it sounds really cliche to say as as julian Ryder put it he's he's quite right you know there's no getting around it it is cliched especially given the fact he's a swiss rider he's a swiss sportsman they don't normally make very many mistakes roger um but um it's 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 very true that it you know he's not making errors he's he's in contention every single race he's never far off the win he he's he's always on the podium and you, yeah, you can win a title this way if the rest of the field is this unpredictable. Normally, I would say you couldn't. But the way this season is playing out where Mark VDS are blowing hot and cold on certain weekends, well, sometimes it's Frankie, sometimes it's been Alex Marquez this season. So the way it's been going, it's not clear-cut. And when it's not clear-cut, guys that don't make mistakes and finish on the podium on a regular basis can come into play. It's what Valentino Rossi did a couple of years ago when he went against Lorenzo. He only won four rounds to Lorenzo seven, and yet Rossi led the championship through 16 out of the 18 rounds. It's one of those things where, you know, if you can put it off, it can work. And this is, this is what's happening with Thomas Luti so far. Absolutely. And there's, there's a corner at the Saxon this weekend named after a watch company as well, the Omega, so he'll feel right at home this weekend, won't he? Uh, <laughs> the Saxon ring. I'm done, I promise. Um, let's let's talk about the battle for the final podium spot then, which came down to Takaki Nakagami and Matei Pasini. Um which saw a similar kind of incident to the one we saw between Rossi and Marquez at that corner two years ago. Um, Pasini going straight across the chicane and taking third on the road, only to get a one-place penalty after the race, which promoted Akagami to the rostrum. Um, and the big question I have here, Dre, is how on earth did Matteo Pasini have the nerve to query that penalty? No, no, Matteo, no. You, you, you don't get to fight this one. This was bang to rights. You absolutely outbreak yourself and cut the chicane. It wasn't like Valentino where he was arguably shoved off mm. by, by Marquez. He was, you know, bold, brave on the break, and he did make the corner, but he left Valentino Rossi nowhere to go. Um, but Matteo outbraked himself, got it wrong, cut the chicane, tried to keep his third place, it was a bit cheeky. Um, and yeah, he was rightly punished for it. Although I make the argument, did he gain one position or two by cutting that chicane? Because Oliveira and Nakagami were pretty much side by side 
over the line. I think a two-place penalty would have made more sense than a one-place penalty. But, now there you go, I suppose. You really wouldn't have taken that well, would he, if he was given two spots after the race. But, uh, but yeah, Nakagami <laughs> taking third then, given that he is the... He is one of the hot topics of the panic right now, given that MotoGP teams, in particular LCR, are looking at him. It was a timely podium for Nakagami. Yeah, a timely podium indeed. I mean, again, the, the talk is piping up again. That it looks like his, his main sponsor, Inamitsu, of the um, of the Air Asia team, are going to be sponsoring and, and basically supplying a second bike for LCR. Um, and and, and Takanakagami could be riding it because Dorna want another Japanese rider in the top flight. And... Yeah, this is this is this, this was due for Taka. He's been in the mix a lot of this season. Unfortunately, through a lot of the time through matters out of his hands, he's had races ruined from from his own back pocket, um, which has been a shame. But that's how it can be sometimes. Um, but yeah, he's making the most of his chances now. He, that was a very well earned podium finish, and you know it's looking like he could be going to MotoGP. So you know, give you give yourself as much stock as possible and look as good as you can. He's doing a great job. Yep. So Nakagami <laughs> third, ahead of Pasini and Oliveira, who took fifth on the KTM, having led it early on. And uh, as Dre mentioned earlier on, he had a similar kind of contact with Morbidelli as Rossi and Zarco did in the MotoGP race, which very nearly took him out of proceedings. He recovered from that to finish fifth. Um, Alex Marquez in sixth, though, Dre, um, having. Mm. Brought himself right into championship contention with that victory uh, in Catalonia and a dominant victory too. I don't know. I don't want to say he slipped back back into his old ways because he was still in the fight for the win in the leading group. But right. that's a lot of points he's given up there. He's basically undone all the hard work he did at, at the Catalonia, hasn't he? Yeah, that was a, a hefty chunk of points he's given back to his teammate there in the title fight. And it's looking like it could easily be a two-horse race soon with, with Morbidelli versus Luti for the championship because Marquez is is drifting off now when he was starting to reel them in and it's a shame because yeah Alex Marquez has got the talent for it but it's looking more and more like this is not going to be Alex's year it might be next year where Morbidelli and possibly Luti and Taka move up um, we, we saw the news this week that um, Alex will be signing another one-year extension with Mark VDS's dot 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 moto 2 team he's not going up to moto gp next year yeah, his he's teammate will be joan mir by the way yes yeah you yeah. better perform next year because yeah. joan mir is going to be a, is, is, that's going to be a guy that could scare him a little bit because mir is having a fantastic season in moto 3 obviously and that's that's exactly the sort of young guy that you would normally see on a pond um he's going <laughs> over to mark vds they've snapped probably the number one guy in the in the, in the previous class now for next year and that's going to be a guy that's going to be one to watch in Moto2 to see how he adapts next year. And, and it's better do because, I mean, that's going to be year four for Alex Marquez in Moto2. That's the sort of time where if you're developing and you're learning, year four is when it generally comes together. It was year four for Rabat and for Zarco when they won their Moto2 titles. And again, they've had they've gone on to MotoGP careers. And you know, Alex says he's not quite there. He says next year will be the year. For his sake, I hope he's right. <laughs> yeah, he's, I mean, they, they won't be drawing up odds yet for next season's World of Two Championship, but I'd be pretty certain he'll go in as favourite, whatever happens this year. Alex Marquez, he might still go in as, as defending champion like Zarco did. We'll have to wait and see uh, on that one. Here's how the uh, Dutch TT finished in order 2. Morbidelli, the winner from Luti and Nakagami. Uh, Pasini relegated to fourth after crossing the line in third. Oliveira, fifth. Marquez, sixth. That was your leading group. Then came Xavier Simeon in seventh. That's his best of the season. Hafiz Siren in eighth. Fabio Quartararo in ninth after qualifying fifth. So he's getting the hang of motor too, isn't he, uh, at the moment. And Peko Bagnaia, who, um, as Dre mentioned earlier on, had that faceplant moment on quali in qualifying on Saturday. 
got a top 10 out of it, finished 10th in the Grand Prix on Sunday. So, um, yeah, the, uh, the phrase no pain, no gain certainly applies to Bagnaia. Uh, on this occasion. Uh, Marcel Schrotter, 11th ahead of Dominic Egerter, Brad Binder gets points in 13th, Johnny Hernandez, 14th, and Jorge Navarro, another rookie to impress in 15th, getting his uh, getting another point to add to his tally this season. Uh, Morbidelli's championship lead is back up to 12 points after his victory ahead of Luti, which is amazing, as I said earlier on. Five wins to Luti's none, and there's only a 12-point gap in the championship. Uh, Marquez is a further 23 back now after only finishing 6th at the weekend. Oliveira is 4th. Uh, he trails the championship leader by 54. Then comes Pasini in 5th. Nakagami is 6th. Banyaya 7th. Agata 8th. Luca Marini, despite not um, scoring at the weekend, uh, he finished, a, or he is ninth in the championship, should I say, on 41. And Xavi Vieje, who didn't even start the race at Assen after injuring himself in free practice, he is 10th on 39 points. Right, Moto3 time. And... Model 3 Aston always delivers entertaining racing. It's pretty much a guarantee. Uh, this one was no exception, Dre. And Aaron Canet, it seems, only deals in last lap victories, last corner victories. He pulled off that amazing dive bomb at the final corner to go from third to first at Jerez. And uh, this time, he waited until the final chicane to mug Romano Fanati. Surprise! <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely right. I mean, Aaron Canet has just got this knack of being in the right place at the right time. And he, he nailed it, made the move when he needed to make the move, and he got there. And, yeah, tremendous, tremendous play from from, from Aaron Cannon to win what was yet another ridiculous Moto3 pack race assassin. Stop me if you've heard that one before. But um, God, it could have been any one of maybe six or seven dudes or going into that final chicane if they got the right breaking job, the right line. And all sorts of good stuff um, in, in in there, but yeah, it was Canet that came out on top. Brilliant victory indeed. <laughs> yeah, it was a race that was kind of characterised by the wet qualifying session that we had on Saturday um, at Aston, which meant that a number of stronger riders were at the back. We had some unfamiliar names at the front, including the poles, Thai rider Nakarin Atirat Fubapat, who led it at turn one. Amazingly, that's that's hard enough to say without a two thirty, let alone with one. So trust me. Well done. Um, but uh, yeah, he led it into turn one when he, he kind of saw the lights on and thought, "Hey, uh, this is my chance to lead a Grand Prix. Let's go for it." And basically, sent, put the kitchen sink on it into turn one and ran wide, and then ended up losing the lead again. But yeah, we, saw, we, <laughs> we saw, we saw. I think I'd have probably done the same if I was him. Um, but he he led in yes. turn one, then fell backwards, and we had Canet himself who'd have to come from sixth on the grid. Fanati had to come from fifteenth on the grid. Uh, McPhee had to come from 19th on the grid and managed to claw his way up into the leading group towards the end. Um, an astonishing race. John Mir, though, Dre, um, who, like Canet, really, has had that knack of being in the right place at the right time. He always seems to find his way to the front by the final lap. And he'd done it again here, but rarely for, for Mir, he got beaten up on that last lap. Executive order. Executive order. Um, <laughs> yeah. They, they, basically, I think the Moto Freefielder was basically, at this point, kind of shit to Joanne Mir's shit. At this point. <laughs> they were like, you know what? No, 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 no. You're not winning this one too, Junior. And they basically got the elbows out at turn 10 and 11. I was like, nope, nope, you're not winning this one. We don't care what you tell me. First, uh, down to ninth. To ninth over the line, he was beaten up. And it was a it was a race. So I was thinking, oh, no, Mir's going to win this, isn't he? Um, because it was funny because it was like just the first Murdo free race I'd ever seen where like with Sky Bet you could bet in play on the race itself as it was going on, which was which was all sorts of funny and crazy. But uh, Mir was setting up to win. He was favourite on the penultimate lap, and and then it's like he was setting up like he was second or third, like he was, he was going to get the toe up the back straight, thinking okay, Mir's going to win this, isn't he? And the next thing you know, elbows out, bang, 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 bad run out of turn eleven up the back, and next thing you know, Mir's coming over the line. 
right in the back of the leading group rather than at the front. And um, trying not to avoid a sprawling Bo Benchneider as he comes over the line. But like, but yeah, it, it was it was yeah it was bizarre because he yeah he just he just seemed to just sink back through the leading group and. Yeah, we're not used to seeing that with Joan Mir. He seems to time it just right, but on this occasion, uh, he hadn't. As I said, it was Canit in the end, and yeah, Canit's now, along with Fanati, they're both pretty much neck and neck in the championship, two points apart, but they've both taken a big chunk out of Mir's points lead. They're, you know, from a point in, the, in time where we thought Mir was going to pull away with this, particularly after his win in Catalonia, where he was so good and mugged Martin at the final corner, they've just mm. clicked his wings again. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's that same thing where Mir's like, he's just about to run away with it, and then it's like, nope. The rest of the field comes back and smacks him in the nose. And it was a bit like that in Kota as well. But same deal again here where Mir looks like he was primed to get a win and it turns out the field's turned on him. And that's what they've got to do. That's that's what, like, if, if you don't want Mir to win this championship, you've got to get rough with him by the looks of it. Because it's looking like he's, he may not be ready for that sort of elbows out sort of physical race that uh, Romano Fanati seems to love an awful lot, mm. which is probably finished in second yeah i, mean, I do find it interesting though where you mentioned that you could bet in play on the race i mean i imagine that was one of those where you could barely get a betting because every corner they'd be suspending it because the odds would be changing wouldn't they yeah uh, in a motor three race but uh but yeah that would have been a hell of a lot of fun to, to bet on uh, imagine yeah. the odds you'd have got on can it at the start of the final lap um but yeah <laughs> it, was, it was an incredible final charge from him and you've got to say without retreading an old topic that we've discussed already in this show it does call into question once again his decision to move up into moto uh, or not to move up should i say to moto two for next year, because Fanati's not really the kind of guy, as good as he is, that you can really put too much hope in and too much faith in right. to win the championship. So if anyone's going to beat John Mir to this world championship, surely Canet's the guy. Yeah, I think so. I think Canet has now positioned himself quite nicely to the point where he should be challenging for the championship here. And I think the threat is going to be Aaron Canet. And... I mean, Canet has now gone down to six to one to win the championship. He's now third favourite behind Fanati and the one to five Joanne Mir, um, which kind of says it all right now. But if the threat's going to come from anywhere, it's Canet. I think he's the only other guy in the field to win multiple rounds this season. So Canet looks like he's positioned himself to be the guy. So why is he staying? <laughs> yeah, it is a strange one. And it's it's kind of a similar situation, I think, to the Ducati team in MotoGP with Davizioso and Lorenzo, where Australia Galicia kind of. They were prepared to pace with their eyeballs to get Bastianini into this team. Yeah. Out Grassini, and it's his teammate that might well bring it home for them and win the championship at the end of the season. As Bastianini continues to struggle in yeah. Moto3, um, he didn't score points because he was brought down at the final chicane by Di Gian Antonio early in the race. Um, so, um, yeah, it looks like Canet might well be their guy to, to really take the championship fight. And you do wonder if there is a link. Well, we know there's a link between their Moto3 team and the Mark Vides Moto2 team. Maybe... Can it might well just be waiting a year for Marquez to move up and he'll just slot into that spot, who knows, um, sure. in their Moto2 team. It certainly wouldn't surprise me. Um, but Fanati taking second and closing in, like Canet, on the championship leader. Fanati is now 32 off the lead. Um, but it's amazing how long this guy's been around, Dre, in Moto3. This is now his uh, fifth season um, in Moto3. In fact, it's his sixth season. He debuted 2012. Um, and you'd think he has more career wins than he actually does. He's not even into double figures for race wins. Um, is it just me? Well, I know it's not just me, but how often do we see Fanati just miss out in these bunch, bunch battles at the end? Yeah, it happens a lot with him. He, he is Mr. Punch's chance, where if he's in a final lap and he's in the top five, he's got about a 50-50 chance of winning it. Or Sometimes he'll come through and take it. Sometimes he'll do something really silly or outbreak himself. 
off or just get punched in the nose by somebody after probably getting a bit too intense himself come out on the losing side of that fight and ends up further back and that was Fanati in this one where he just got pipped to the post by Aaron Cannett on this one and it's a shame because I think Fanati is again he has the pace and the ability and the nous to win any given race on paper he's that good and he's got the experience that nobody else in the field outside of maybe John McPhee now has got and yet, despite that, well, here we are. Like, Vanati is always a little bit on the wrong side of disappointment, unfortunately. Yeah, I've got his, I've got his career stats ahead of me as well. I mean, you might already know this, in which case this segment's going to fall rather flat. But uh, 80 career starts in Moto3. How many think he's won? How many career starts he's 80. 8-0. Let me think about this a second. I'm going to try and be clever here. I think seven. Yeah, he's won seven races in, in Moto3. Four of them in 2014 for the Sky team. Um, that's the only season where he's won more than once in a Moto3 season. And for a perennial front guy uh, in Moto3, you'd expect him to have a better win rate than that, than a 1 in 10 ratio, essentially. Um, yeah, in Moto3, he's just short of 1 in 10 he's winning. So, yeah, for someone who's always up there, Fanati does seem to have a habit of just getting pipped at the post in these bunch of sprints. Uh, in Moto3, which leads me, and I've said this before on this show, it leads me to think that he's just better off just getting the hell out of there and just getting on a Moto2 bike. And it might well do, you might well really click on that because he clicked as soon as he jumped on a Moto3. Just get into Moto2, Romano, and you might well find yourself a little bit more at home in that one where it's not quite as frenetic uh, and you don't get beaten at the finish line just quite as often. Um, he needs, of course, though, to prove in Moto3 that he's worth a Moto2 spot, which is half the battle, uh, I suppose. Um, the final podium spot alongside Canet and Fanati went to John McPhee of the British talent team from 19th on the grid. Now, um, he received the full um, bonting and uh, street parade from BT Sport as a result of this. Um, but um, as much as that coverage or level of cheerleading kind of grates on us, let's call a spade a spade. That was a cracking ride from John McPhee. Begrudgingly, through gritted teeth, yes, it was um, a brilliant ride from John McPhee. And I'm trying See, really even at half distance. He wasn't in that leading group. He had to jump across a big gap, didn't he? He did. He had to cross like a two second gap to get into that leading group and then do the damage from there to get up the field. It was a mature, disciplined, fast, well-mannered ride from John McPhee. He did everything right on that one, which makes you wonder why isn't this John McPhee every weekend? Because if this was John McPhee every weekend, I'd be saying this is the guy you want to be leading the British Talent Cup. And he needed a weekend like this because he was having one too many unsatisfactory weekends, especially with the amount of pressure that's on him to succeed, given that you are now a face of a, of a global sporting leagues movement for more British talent. Uh, you're the walking advert for that now, so you've got to go. You've got to get in there and deliver. Even more so this weekend, with Danny Kent back in the class, but uh, obviously former world champion Danny Kent in the class, but. Yeah, no matter which way you slice it, that was a brilliant ride from John McPhee. We need more of that from John because the talent's always been there. He's always been capable of rides like that. We just need more of them, and that was one of them. Hopefully it continues. Yeah, especially with Rory Skinner, who rides in the Rebel Rookies and the CEV. He'll be old enough next year to actually enter um, the Moto3 World Championship. Of course, he's still 15, but he'll be 16 by the time next season starts, and he'll actually be old enough to qualify because he hasn't won that Junior World Championship yet, which would have earned him an early entry to Moto3. He'll be old enough next year, so um, McPhee's place in that team might well be under threat if uh, if Skinner ends up winning the Red Bull Rookies, which he's in semi-contention to do. We'll tell you how he got on uh, at Assen uh, in a moment. Um, 
But outside of that, Jorge Martin taking fourth, and um, it's a, a familiar old story for Jorge Martin. I mean, his, his week's gone even further downhill today. We'll tell you about that later. Um, but yet again, Jorge Martin, another brilliant pole position um, where he absolutely murdered them in those drying conditions on Saturday, but yet again, couldn't convert it. Oh, it's, it's sad. Jorge Martin is clearly the fastest man in Moto3 around one lap of a track. He has got unbelievable top-end speed. Um, it's the best I think I've ever seen in Moto3 as a guy that's just got this raw qualifying pace that nobody else in the class seemingly has. But he's just not... It's a shame because he and he has greatly improved his race pace this year. He's, he's just, he was, he was like, on pole ass and by 0.8 of a second. That's, that's incredible. Like, no matter which way, uh, without a toe, plus, like, 0.8 on everybody is nuts. And, yeah, like I said, it's, like, I, I don't want to be too harsh on it because this is still in a vacuum an incredible amount of improvement for Martin. He's gone from top 10 guy to top three guy all of a sudden this year. He's a guy that's, you know, he's had four podium finishes this year. He's had multiple top sixes on top of that and looking like a real, you know, potential promotion level dude now in Moto3. But it's just not quite... It reminds me of Inea again, where it's another guy that's just seemingly knocking on the door, and but he just can't quite kick it open and get that first win. It's it's coming. It's clearly coming. And he's he's doing all the right things. It's, it, it will happen. I, I'm sure of it. Maybe. Mm. Yeah, he's, um, another Spaniard though who's certainly getting there and will get there in the future is Marcos Ramirez who yet again for the fourth time in five races was the leading KTM rider across the finish line um, the first five um, Canet, Fanati, McPhee, Martin and Jules Danilo who deserves a shout out career best in fifth um, teammate right. to Fanati um, Ramirez next up in sixth and I don't know whether uh, Ramirez has a rider manager or a an agent as, uh, as footballers do but if he does He'll be rubbing his hands every passing weekend, won't he, Drake? Because his price and his value for future teams for next year just keeps going up and up and up. Yeah, skyrocketing. Like, 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 never sell your stock in this man. It's only going up right now. Do do not sell. Buy, buy more. Um, he's he's doing a great, great job right now. And again, seems to be getting more and more impressive by the race. It's, it's all coming together nicely for him. So, yeah, buy more stock. Do Absolutely. it. Yeah, we had a leading group of 10 over the line um, with uh, Ramirez in sixth, Rodrigo seventh, uh, Tatsuyuki Suzuki eighth, and Joan Mir ninth. Um, now, if you're wondering why I've only mentioned nine riders there, it's because a tenth crossed the line. Um, but unfortunately, rider and motorcycle Dre had become detached inches before the finish line, and Bo Benchnider was thrown out. To, to explain the rule, you have to be holding your bike as it crosses the yeah, that's line. That's why we often see riders crash at the final corner and then basically wheel it over the line. Yes, because you're still classed as a finisher if you push your bike over the line. You do not count as a finisher if your transponder crosses the line and you're not on the bike. Which is why Bo Benchneider was robbed of a top 10 finish. At his home Grand Prix. At his home Grand Prix, literally about two feet from the finish line. It is... <laughs> Because he's still, like, as you say, in the slow-mo, like, he's, he's literally approaching it. He's meters away, and he's still got his hands on it. And it's that agonizing moment as you see his fingertips just, like like those movies where someone's hanging off the edge of a cliff and his fingertips just sadly, slowly, slowly lose control. <laughs> oh. it, was, it, was, it was tragic for Ben Schneider that he lost what would have been Jeez. a top 10 at his home Grand Prix. And he had a good weekend, all because he qualified second as well, Ben Schneider, middle of the front row. 
Um, so he's clearly one of those riders. I think it's more common in Moto3 where they're not quite as experienced, where home comforts really do suit Moto3 riders. Ben Schneider, one of those, uh, who was in the middle of the front row. But yeah, he couldn't quite convert it. He was deemed a non-finisher. He was deemed to be not classified one lap down, um, which just seems a little silly, doesn't it? He, um, you know, if, uh, if, if, if that bike... The only reason that bike crossed the line is, well, obviously because he fell off, but he had momentum and basically yeah, it was Ben Bo that made that bike go that far. So surely he should be given that. I, I, just, I think that's a bit of a silly rule, personally. Um, for, for Ben Schneider to lose that um, it's not like he meant to fall off the thing is it um, right. but uh, but Joan Mia swerving around him and taking ninth, 10th in the end then going to Nicolo Bulliga who was at the front of that second group uh, in 10th position um, kind of says a lot about his season that that's about as good as it's been from him uh, this year Championship looks like this then. John Mir, 30 points ahead now of Canet, 140 to 110. Fanati's two further back in third. Then comes Jorge Martin in fourth on 89. He won't be riding this weekend at Saxon Ring, as I mentioned. We'll tell you why later. John McPhee in fifth on 83. Then Dijan Antonio, who I told you crashed with Bastianini. He's sixth on 80. Migno, seventh on 78, although he, um, he did have something to celebrate because we saw him uh, hogging his uh, his boss, Valentino Rossi, after his MotoGP win. Uh, Migno was only 14th in the Moto3 race. He is down to 7th now. Uh, Ramirez is up to 8th, ahead of Guevara in 9th, and Bastianini completes the top 10 on 49 points. Red Bull rookies also went to Aston last weekend. Uh, Rory Skinner not able to take the victory in this occasion. He had a grid penalty carrying over uh, from the previous round, uh, which took place earlier in the season at Jerez. So um, Skinner had to take a pretty serious grid drop for the first race of the day uh, first race of the weekend and in the end both race wins in dominant fashion going to the Turkish youngster Chan Onsu uh, one of uh, two twin brothers his brother Dennis finished a little bit further down the field but uh, Keenan Safoglu's influence is growing stronger and stronger um, in world motorcycle sport um, Onsu taking the double win he still trails championship leader LH View um, by uh, 16 points View on 81 Onsu's second on 65 Let's go on to the news then. And uh, the Speedway GP Series hit Denmark last week. A round that so often is won by Ty Wuffenden. But much to Rebecca James's delight, it was won this time by Matze Janowski, who took four wins out of his seven rides, including the final most significantly. Uh, top point scorer on the night. And Janowski beating Emil Saifudinov, the Russian, in at the final uh, with championship leader heading in anyway. Patrick Dudek in third. Jason Doyle fourth, having scraped his way through to the final. Um, having taken advantage of some... Uh, some incidents, shall we say, a crash in the semi that promoted him into the top two spots. Um, Mate Zegar in fifth. Ty Wuffenden was sixth. He didn't make it out of the semi-final. Nor did Antonio Limbach, who was also fortunate to make the semis after a rider just ahead of him um, crashed out of the lead in the final heat, which promoted uh, Limbach into the win in his final heat, which made saw him make the semis by one point. Uh, Lindback ended up the meeting in eighth spot, just ahead of Kenneth Bier, who was the rider to lose out when Lindgren, uh, when Lindback was promoted in. Uh, Freddie Lindgren, another Swede, was uh, also on eight points, level with Lindback. Greg Hancock, reigning champion, had another poor round, which he's had a few of this season. Uh, he was down in 11th spot, only seven points from his five rides, even though he did win uh, one of them. Doyle and Dudek are tied for the lead of the championship on 65 points. Janowski is third, seven behind them. 
so the championship is closing right up. Uh, Freddie Lindgren is a further seven back in fourth. Then Wuffenden in fifth, uh, 17 off the championship lead. Saifudinov in sixth. Hancock seventh, so his championship uh, defence is hanging by a thread already. He's 20 points off the lead. Uh, Martin Vachilik is eighth, which is the last automatic spot into next year, with Piotr Pavlitsky, Bartosz Szymarzlik and Matej Zegar outside of it at the moment. Uh, now back to the MotoGP paddock and um, back into Moto3. And um, you'll notice through these shows so far this season, we haven't mentioned Mahindra much. Um, they've had a pretty rotten season so far. Their leading team, the Aspar team, have pulled up very few trees so far this season. Well, Dre, we're not going to be mentioning Mahindra much next year either. They're pulling out of Moto3 to concentrate on Formula E. Yeah, um, yeah, I get it. Um, it is a shame. I mean, Mahindra, I mean, it looked like they were starting to turn the corner with Pekka Banyaya last yeah. year. They had a couple of wins to their name and they, uh, they were like, I don't know how much of that was just Pekka Banyaya being really, really good and how much of that was Mahindra actually making gains as a, as a manufacturer. Oh, yeah, so let's not forget, Jorge Martin was his teammate last year and we didn't see any of him. Yeah, and Martin... He's good. Yeah, and he's good, and he's now the fastest man in Moto3 on a Honda, which kind of says it all, really. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what the baseline really is between the two of them, but I'll let you be the judge on that. But it's a shame. It's always a shame to lose a manufacturer in a, in a motorcycle class in Mahindra. It's a shame because they were always somewhat of the third wheels um, in Moto3 compared to KTM and Honda. But, you know, they're, they're a small firm compared to, you know, obviously, Honda and KTM in terms of competition. And you know they've, they've, they've their Formula E team is is doing well right now with Nick Heinfeld and, and Felix Rockenfest right now the driver for hire as I like to call them. Um, they got a win, I, didn't they? Not long ago. Yeah, they did. Yeah, Felix got got their first win um, at, back in Berlin. So yeah, like, their, their their Formula E team is making strides. They're trying to chase down Edams where that's concerned. And yeah, I mean, if I was at the boss of Indra, I'd probably say, yeah, that probably is a smarter investment of resources right now. Yeah, where much- should we be spending our money? To win uh, a growing, burgeoning, popular series in Formula E or spend money riding around at the back in Moto3? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, no, it, no. The, the two don't really weigh up uh, equally, do they? Uh, so you can kind of see what they're doing. It is a shame for Moto3, though, because it essentially leaves us as a two-manufacturer series <laughs> next year um, mm-hmm. with Honda and KTM because um, there's no sign of anyone else joining that anytime soon. And sure, it won't make it any less entertaining, but you would like to see more bikes from different manufacturers uh, in the field. As we've seen in Moto2, um, it's been kind of diluted over the years with only one chassis constructor, essentially, in Calex um, over the years. So, yeah, Mahindra pulling out at the end of this season. Um, MotoGP news, we brought you this earlier on. Franco Morbidelli is confirmed now, but Australia this year might be the S in MotoGP next season aboard a Honda. Um, first thing it does is puts about any of the rumours which uh, we're linking in with a Pramac ride for next season because um, Scott Redding's seat appears to be under serious threat. At that team, Morbidelli will not be joining them. He'll be joining the Australian this year at Mark VDS team, where it looks, Dre, as if he'll have Jack Miller as a teammate. Yes. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Tito Rabat next year, because there's a lot going on with him. But um, it will be very interesting to see what happens. But, um, yeah, Morbidelli going up to MotoGP makes total sense. Um, it's, it's a great fit for him. He's He's been... You know, he's, he's taking his game to the next level in Moto2 this season. And it's, it's sad to say Rabat's never really looked comfortable in MotoGP. It looks like he's always been fighting tooth and nail with that Honda. And that's what worries me about Morbidelli moving up next year. Rabat, who was the class of Moto2 for, for a good two or three seasons, 
um, has gone to MotoGP, and the Honda is not a very user-friendly sort of bike. It's 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 like it's taken Jack Miller, who we forget was a great Moto3 rider, and it took him two or three years to really get to grips with 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 with, with the Honda as to what it is. So. Like we're playing catch up where that's concerned, and I'm not sure if Morbidelli is going to be a good fit for an uncompetitive Honda machine at the back of the field right now, which is you know, which is roughly where the Mark VDS team is right now. Yeah. Miller seems really well of it, but Rabat's struggling. Yeah, so. the phrase I used with Rabat earlier on was out of his depth, which sounds harsh, but I just, yeah. I just get a feeling he is at the moment. He's just not um, quite good enough, and you know, we're talking about the elite level here of Grand Prix motorcycle racing, and so it's not not a a disgrace to be out of your depth in there because only 20 odd riders in the world are up to it um so um yeah tito about not really making it work there's there been a couple of rumors around rabat joy one of them linking in with the avintia team um in, for on a satellite Ducati next season the other one which i find really interesting is linking in with red bull honda world Superbikes next year could you see that i could see it i mean they did it with stefan bradle why couldn't they do it here i mean a guy that's struggling in a honda outfit with bradle you know, i wouldn't say bradle struggled in moto gp i thought he was always a good rider oh, it was just of circumstance hasn't he exactly it was like you know well, let's get somebody else on there let's get the equally not quite as good as they were hoping to be cal crutchlow but um it's it's a shame but i think i mean honda do like Obviously, for obvious reasons, they need a second world superbike rider. They only ran Bradle at Donington Park. They're going to need a second rider for next year, obviously due to obviously terrible circumstances. But that's the reality. That's business. You got you've got to move on at some point. And why not Tito Rabat? I mean, that that could be a good fit, a good baseline, experienced rider to have as a second fiddle to to, to Bradle. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does have the whiff of the MotoGP. It didn't quite work out m- montage with him and Bradle together, but hmm. it's, not a, it's not a bad fit. I mean, why not use your yeah, resources? Might be the, the reset he needs in his career, and he's you know, he's already won a Moto Two title like Bradle, so try and add a World Superbike title to that. You know, that is quite a feather in someone's cap, as Jonathan Ray uh, can attest to. You know, the, the standard is high there. Um, in, in World Superbikes. Um, another ride you've been with World Superbikes, really, really tentative rumours, but Julian Riley mentioned this today, Scott Redding, um, who I, I, I don't quite understand which team he's been linked with. I'm assuming it's Honda too. Um, but you've got to ask the question here, Dre, and we'll, we'll ask it quietly because in case Bex is listening, but if there, if there are so many riders being linked with his Pramit ride at the moment, you've got to assume that he's going to lose it. So where does Scott Redding go? World Supersport. Um, <laughs> he can't, no, he can't no. really go back to Moto2, can he? I mean, no, he, hasn't he? That, well, he hasn't won that title, so I guess he could, but I'd, I'd struggle to picture that. Uh, I don't know. He's a guy, yeah. how do I phrase this? He's a guy with a bit of an ego. Um, and oh, can, yeah, can, his, can his ego stand dropping a class? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, if there's one person that believes in Scott Redding more than anybody else, it's Scott Redding. Um, so... I don't know. Like maybe Avintia, like you say, it looks like Avintia is going to clear the decks. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I have my head, I'm scratching in my head here, thinking like there's not an obvious answer to this question because Avintia might clear out, but Laurie Spaz has been better than Hector Barbara this season for the most part, and Barbara has been a bit disappointing. It's a shame that as well on Baz because he's kind of a victim of the fact that MotoGP no longer needs. Um, well, they brought him in because they needed a French rider, essentially. Um, and Dawn were happy to subsidise uh, his wages to bring Baz into the Avincia team. But now Joan Zarco's on the scene, Baz isn't really needed. Um, but it's a really, real shame that because he's, he's done an absolutely cracking job on that bike. 
Absolutely. And again, you've got to remember, he's not really designed to be riding bikes, given he's frigging six foot two. Yeah. But um, he's enormous. But yeah, here he is as a quality bike rider, and he's done nothing but good things in MotoGP with the occasional really outstanding ride. Um, it's just a shame that he, again, I read it in David Emmett's thesis and come right at the end. He said, listen, like, Baz would be a victim of circumstance because he's a good rider, but unfortunately, MotoGP team bosses are looking for great riders, and that's the problem. It's that the standard is now so high. We're thinking about moving on a 250 race veteran like Hector Barbara. That kind of says it all, really. It's bonkers. Hmm. Yeah, it is a shame, but um, there are going to be many, many moves over the course of this summer break, we feel, uh, in MotoGP to see uh, who stays and who goes. Uh, on the MotoGP grid for next season. Um, we know someone who's been staying in Moto2, that's Alex Marquez, who will be staying with the Australia Galicia Mark BDS team. Um, that's teammate to Joan Mir, as we mentioned earlier on. Now, Marquez says um, his uh, official party line is that he doesn't feel he's ready yet. He needs another year in Moto2. Um, but this is, what, his third season? In, in fourth season in, in Moto3, in Moto2? So how many more years does he need? Is this more a case of there isn't a suitable spot available for me, so I'm going to stick around? Yes, um, I, 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 it, it's a close one for me, and this is year three for Alex Marquez. Maybe year four is the one that makes the difference. Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it might, where, it might be the difference between him winning a title, but I don't think a fourth year in Moto Two will necessarily make him a better Moto GP rider. Yeah, it's it's. I don't know. It's like. I don't think the class is going to be anywhere near as strong next year either, especially if the rumours are true. And that's, I mean, we know Morbidelli's moving up. I mean, there's a chance Luti moves up. There's a good chance Takanakagami moves up. And that's three of your top five. Miguel Oliveira might be the number one guy to keep an eye on for next year. So, year who knows? Yeah, yeah. yeah he, may, he may well be a guy to watch. Yeah, Alex Marquez staying around then. As I mentioned earlier, he'll probably be championship favourite for next year in Moto2. Uh, whatever happens to him this year. Um, more MotoGP news, which kind of brings us on to this weekend uh, at the Saxon Ring. Um, a rule change that's been brought in for next year in that bikes will now be permitted to display SMS messages uh, on dashboards next season. That doesn't mean you'll be able to text the riders and ask them fan questions that way, as we've uh, seen in press conferences. What it means is that essentially, Dre, dashboards will now be used as a second pit board for the riders. Um, now, on the face of it, it seems quite a sensible measure, but Bradley Smith is vehemently opposed to this. Uh, why was that side of me? He well, he feels that it basically. I think he's one of those who believes in pure racing, for want of a better phrase. Um, <sighs> and um, yeah, Bradley Smith believes that if this kind of system comes in, the Misano twenty fifteen scenario where he and Loris Baz really made it work in changeable conditions wouldn't happen because riders would simply get a message on their dashboard that they need to pit and they'll all be in at the same time. Do you think? I mean, do you see his point? I mean, will will it dilute flag to flag races a bit? I kind of see his point, but. We also realise riders have enormous egos and they're probably not going to listen to their teams. See Rossi, Valentino, for more information on that mm-hmm. over the last few years. It's, it's that, sure, they can show messages, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to listen. And the only person that can override that is race control. And they'll see a race control message and that's one thing. But there's no guarantee a rider's going to listen to their team was it's it's not like formula one where they they value team orders more seriously they don't you don't get that in moto gp really so it's one of those situations where i i, I see both sides of the coin but it's, it's a team's right to supply their rider with as much information as possible and it's a rider's right to refuse that information and that it's the same deal with team orders it's like on one hand sure you could say you know 
they're a necessary evil, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the driver has to follow them either. It's a matter of res- respecting the team. So it can go either way on this one. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. I think it's just a matter of perspective and whether the person, with when the visor goes down, listens to said instructions. Unless it's from race control, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Bradley Smith's argument was, well, if they're going to bring this in, they might as well just give them shift-to-shore radios um, yeah. and go about it that way, which um, I think that would be a step too far. Um, if you can enable teams to talk to their riders during races, that's not really what MotoGP and motorcycle racing as, as at its core is about. Um, so that's for next year. In terms of this weekend, BSB are back. They're in action at Snetterton in Norfolk. And back with them comes Leon Haslam after his uh, concussion-enforced absence um, from the last round at Norkill. Um, and history at Snetterton, Dre, tells us that he's not going to have it all his own way this weekend. This appears to be one of those rounds marked a shaky round. It does look as a shaky round. He's he's looked very confident and very comfortable out here all week. Like both practice sessions we've had so far, he's looked like a mile quicker than everybody else. Like the only guy that's been in the same postcode really has been Jason O'Halloran on that Honda, and it looks like maybe Leon's still maybe hurting a little bit from that injury. I mean, we know we, we know Christian and Glenn Irwin will not be back this round because still recovering from their respective injuries. Major showdown implications that. Indeed, massive showdown implications where that's going to be concerned. So another two races they're going to miss. Haslam looks like he's only at about 80% right now, which could be enough to open the door maybe for a shaky double. Just a thought. Yeah, it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't surprise me at all. And yeah, as I say, it's, it's big problems that for Christian Eddings. As far as the championship is concerned, um, he is seriously exposed now to those guys like Hickman, Dixon, uh, well, Irwin, who's not back, but Ellison in particular, who's 10th in the championship, to really rein him in. Christian Iden is on 86 points, so he's 12 clear of Hickman uh, in 7th. So if Hickman manages to get a couple top 10s, he'll jump above him uh, oh, yeah. in the championship. And uh, as will Dixon, and we know the form Dixon's in at the moment. So yeah, Christian Iden could find himself returning from injury at Brands in a couple of weeks outside of the top 6, which would be cruel, cruel luck for him. Um, and the Tyco BMW team, who have a new rider in place this weekend. Andy Reid um, is in, in place of Davide Giuliano, who, uh, as we mentioned in a previous show, has taken his ball and taken it back home to Italy. Um, Jason yeah. Aaron then, second quickest in, in free practice today. And um, this is a guy with pedigree, shall we say, around Snetterton after his uh, last corner ambush on his teammate Dan Linford last year. So uh, could we potentially be looking at the first ever win for the new Honda Fireblade this weekend? Maybe. Um, yeah, O'Halloran's looked up there. I think mean, he's, he's about the only guy that's really in the mix to challenge Shaky this weekend. And yeah, he's, he's the only other guy that was in like the 47s in practice. And again, like he's looking at the guy that could capitalize the most on this situation where three of the real big hitters are either injured or not taking part at all this weekend. So O'Halloran looks like he could be the main threat. And that, even at worst, is going to be a pair of second places. So. Hey, who's going to sniff at 40 points for Honda right now? Yeah, because he's on that bubble as well, on the edge of the showdown spot. So a couple of podiums here would really do his cause uh, mm-hmm. a lot of good. Um, MotoGP, as we mentioned earlier on, are going back-to-back. They're at Saxon Ring this weekend in Germany before a month-long summer break. And a couple of lines to bring you on Moto3, starting with Danny Kent, who is back in Moto3 this weekend. He's riding for the Rebel KTM IO team that we saw him wildcard with at Le Mans earlier this year. He's there in place of Nicolo Antonelli, who is injured after crashing last weekend at Assen and was seen in tears at the end of the weekend at Assen. This appears to be a rider who mentally has kind of been destroyed a little bit, which is a real shame um, yeah. for Antonelli. Um, but Danny Kendre is uh, he's swapping and um, flip-flopping from one class to another. It appears to have seen him uh, lose track of one of the very key rules in Moto3 these days. 
Yeah, don't dawdle off the racing line. And uh, he's been hit with the brand new 12 place grid penalty as a result of riding outside of the 110% of his best time rule, which is um, the new, again, we saw the memo. We may have seen it after Aston last week where they're, they're really cracking down on this. Now they're saying like 12 place grid penalties. Now, Zero tolerance now. Yeah, this, yeah, that that was the key words in bold on the on the memo. Zero tolerance for this now. Like basically, racing Cross fed up with this shit, and they're saying twelve place minimum punishment now for for dawdling on the racing line with with the with the openness to a further penalty. Um, Sebastian, take notes. But um, <laughs> yeah, you're looking at a twelve place grid penalty minimum now for dawdling on the racing line, and that's seeming to have caught Danny Kent out, poor guy. Yeah, absolutely. He'll start at best 13th on the grid this weekend, and uh, you're going to get the feeling that he'll be starting a lot further down than that uh, on the grid uh, on Sunday. Um, one other line from Moto3, and um, for the second time today uh, on the show, we have to say poor Jorge Martin, because he, um, having failed to convert his latest pole into a victory uh, at Aston last weekend, uh, won't even be on the grid at all this weekend. Um, a horrendous high side, very much in the Baldazari category. Um, earlier today, uh, exiting turn one at the Saxon Ring, um, and a broken ankle and other injuries besides Dre have ruled him out. Exactly. So yeah, a broken ankle and a broken fibula for um, for Game Martin. An awful accident. Very far, high speed, awkward landing. He couldn't leave mm. the accident under his own power. Uh, a real shame. Um, what was ruining what was a real good title overall season for Martin. Luckily, as David Emmett pointed out, if you're going to have a, a leg break like this, the, the round before time break is probably a pretty good time to have it. Um, yeah, it gives you a month to uh, to recover from it. But uh, exactly. but yeah, it is it is a real shame. Yeah, you know it's a bad one when the rider can't even get out of the road um, with, with other riders coming towards him. He's basically so badly hurt and so pain-stricken that he can't get out of there, which... Um, it's such a shame, given that he's in such amazing form at the moment, uh, Jorge Martin. Um, MotoGP this weekend. Um, this, on paper, should be a Marc Marquez round. He has won seven in a row at the Saxon Ring. From 2010 in 125s, through his two Moto2 seasons and MotoGP, he has won seven in a row um, here at the Saxon Ring. But um, in this MotoGP season, Dre, we can't really guarantee on anything. And today, in the dry at least, it was Andrea Dovizioso setting the way. It was indeed. Dovi looking fast out there in, in the dry and in the wet. I mean, again, Hector Barbara was, I think, the fastest in FP2, but kind of a freakish one. It was a drying track. And, you know, what people are like, they're going to get they're gonna get a quick one in before the end of the session, you know, see what the track's like on the changeable conditions. But, uh, yeah, this is this is the Mark Marquez round. He's won here seven years on the spin, looking to make it number eight, which would be just historic, to say the least. I think only Rossi's got that, got that level of streak in him where he, he can win a round seven or eight years running he's the even money favorite to win here this weekend which is amazing given you could have gotten seven to four in him two days ago but he's plummeted in the pricing already because people are jumping on the fact that marquez is pretty good value even if it if, even even if it rains he's looking pretty strong out there and marquez himself said feeling confident dry or wet this weekend which uh, is ominous for the rest of the field if nobody else has got a better price than 11 to 2 right now. Yeah, and given that, as we mentioned earlier on, 11 points covers the top four in the World Championship, there's a strong yeah. chance if Mark Marquez wins this, he'll head into the summer break as championship leader. And whoever would have thought that 
um, after his crashes and his, his various poor races through Honda struggles, it has to be said. Most notably at Mugello, where they were all at sea. Who would have ever thought that he'd go into the summer break potentially with a shot of leading the World Championship? It is an extraordinary season um, that we're having. Um, what we also have the, the likelihood of is some big names in Q1 again, because uh, Rain is playing a serious role in this weekend's um, Grand Prix. Now, by the time you hear this podcast, you'll probably already know who's gone through to Q2, in fairness, but we'll talk about it anyway, Dre, since we're here. Um, only one dry session today. That was free practice one. Um, and a number of riders, including Valentino Rossi, last week's winner, Jorge Lorenzo, Cal Crutchlow, um, and Hector Barbara, they are, and both Suzuki's, are all outside of that top 10. And with rain forecast for tomorrow morning, we're set for another loaded Q1. Yeah, it's going to be another loaded Q1. It was rain is expected tomorrow morning. Uh, so again, FP3 could very well be a, a session where nobody improves on time. And if that's the case, then we're going to get you know, guys like Valentino Rossi in Q1 again. And who knows what can happen in a wet qualifying session. We all saw Sam Lowe's and other guys surprise people to get up into Q2. So He'd also be in Q1. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 a it's a it's a confusing, polarizing situation, and God, do we love it? Yeah, the ten <laughs> riders that at the moment, uh, as we speak on this podcast, who are set to go straight through to Q2 are Davizioso, Vinales, Pedrosa, Alessia Spargaro, fourth on the Aprilia today, Bautista fifth, Marquez sixth, Zarco seventh, Petrucci eighth, Miller ninth, and Scott Redding tenth. Top ten were covered by point four seven six of a second today. Um, which is ridiculous. A second point, well, 1.1 seconds covered the top 20. Um, that's MotoGP, folks, uh, in 2017, and don't we love it? We'll be back next week to review um, the German Grand Prix of the Sex Ring in episode 20 uh, of Bike Life here on Motorsport 1. And before that, though, episode 93 uh, of Motorsport 101. Now, Dre's been dreading this question where I ask him what's coming up uh, on next week's Motorsport 101 because it has to be said, there ain't a lot going on this weekend, bikes aside. Um, uh, um,. The band's back together. Yeah. Um, is, 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 is that enough for you to listen in? Well, the, um, FIA, the FIA having a meeting on Monday. That might be worth it. Uh... Yeah. yeah. Um, we're recording it on Tuesday night. And we'll again, we'll probably know the outcome of the second FIA meeting, which also will be, will be probably the biggest news discussion of the podcast. But we're having a giant mailbag edition, a big Keeping It 101, and most likely your questions as well. So... Hopefully we've got enough meat on the bone to produce a podcast. It'll probably still go three hours knowing us. Yeah, but... we usually manage. Um, if you if you are listening to this, then um, you can get your questions in right now for the mailbag for next week, episode 93 of Motorsport 101, at Motorsport underscore 101 on Twitter. You can send them in on Facebook as well, facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Um, sending your questions in for next week's episode. As I say, we'll be back for episode 20 towards the end of next week, likely the weekend. Uh, here on Bike Live, um, when we'll look back on the Saxon Ring and look ahead to one of the great rounds of the World Superbike calendar as they head stateside to Laguna Seca. Um, for myself and Andrea Harrison for this week, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. See you next week.